0: Next chapter podcasts.
1: Angela Weber is like a two-bit songwriter. Yeah. Who That's what kind I of thought. found his way oh, into yeah. musical theater because yeah. no one was doing rock musicals after hair. So it was kind of like he, he was at the right place at the right time, but he was never really good. As far as I'm concerned. Sure. I really I've never really said I mean he did cats,
2: right? He did cats. All he of did, them are like the yeah, longest Phantom, run but they're all like the longest running musicals in the history of musical theater. So and if you think about uh, some of the most popular movies right now, Andrew Lloyd Webber's like in your motherfucking face, B
1: hey, V. He's got millions of dollars <laughs> and he's a knight. Okay. He's a knight? Fuck yeah, dude. he's Sir Andrew yeah, but Lloyd. You're, Webber. A, you're a baron. I <laughs> <laughs> and I was born a baron. Okay? Born a baron. He had to work his way up into becoming a knight <laughs> with his bullshit.
2: Oh my god, I love that so much. I love that so much! That's such a weird count, too. It's not like it's... We, me and my friend Tull tried to time that out, and it is so fucking Interesting. What they did. The song is Hit It and Quit It by Funkadelic from their 1971 acid rock masterpiece, Maggot Brain. It's also number 479 out of 500 on The 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, everybody? It's me, the King of Fleece. I'm here as the King of Fleece, and I'm giving love to you. This is the only podcast, guys, probably the only one in the whole world that's going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the top 500 albums. And uh, I'm having a great time doing it. And I know you guys are having a great time listening. Thank you for making this one of the best experiences of my life. And thank you also to everybody that is doing the Instagram stories. So I want you to keep doing it. This is all it is. Take a screenshot of how you're listening to The 500. And I want you to go to Instagram stories, put that picture of how you're listening to it on Instagram stories. Tag me at Josh Adam Myers and hashtag the 500 podcast. And why don't you go ahead and put a hashtag fleece army in there? Give me a 24 hour ad. I'm trying to get the word out. And this is a way for you and your friends to like join in and be like, fuck, yeah, dude. What is this podcast? And you're like, yeah, it's the 500. The guy So the guy wears a lot of fleece, and uh, he, he calls us the Fleece Army, and we're going through the greatest recorded music in the history of mankind. So join in, and they're like, well, I want to do it. And then you go, well, fuck yeah. Here's the new one. It's Maggot Brain. That's the album we're breaking down. And my guest today is stand-up comic and actor Baron Vaughn. You guys know him from playing Wobbedyke Bergstein on Grace and Frankie on Netflix. He also is Tom Servo on Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix. He's a hilarious comic. He's also host of The New Negroes coming on Comedy Central on April 19th. Love him to death. Very, very good friend of mine. And it was so much fun to sit down and get to know him because this is an important album, guys. Maggot Brain. Is something else. I was not expecting this record to be as rock and rollish. Not only is this the bridge between Motown's darker, psychedelic direction of the late 60s and early 70s and Detroit's acid rock proto punk scene, but you can hear the influence and the key elements of funk and soul in the mix. And you could definitely hear it in some bands like Bad Brains, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Fishbone, Living Color, Chumbawamba, Hanson, Nelson, Mandela, and the regular Nelson. Don't forget, guys, to listen to the end of the podcast where we're going to spotlight a new artist that was directly influenced by Funkadelic. Also, rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 on your platform of your choosing. Follow me on social media, guys. I'm almost at 10,000 on Instagram. I really want to do it. So, dude, if you're listening to this podcast, you're in fucking Belgium. If you're listening to this podcast and you're in France, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in Cincinnati, Ohio. Go on your social and follow me. I need followers, man. I got to show my mom that I'm doing something. And My mom is is a is an influencer. That'd be so weird if my mom was an influencer this old Jewish woman. No, guys, this is You Gotta Buy the Fit Tea. Buy Fit Tea from me. It's me, Sharon Myers. Hashtag ad. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500. Follow me at Josh Anna Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com. Send me an email, guys. Tell me that you're digging it. Tell me what you don't like. I know that some of you don't like this, so fucking tell me, and I'll figure out how to fix it. Or just say, Josh, I love the podcast. That's all you got to do. That's all I want. For all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. So I guess that's it, man. Nothing else to do, but here we go. with number 479 out of 500. With Maggot Brain by Funko Deleg. We
3: don't fight no more for a fight, go tell no for no, a no Baron Bonavent, Baron, Bonavent,
2: Baron Bon. Baron, Bonavent, Baron. <tongue> Baron Vaughn, Baron Vaughn, Baron Vaughn, and Baron Vaughn. Thank you for the company of it. People are, as I keep doing this, people keep adding more and more. Like, people just go, wow! Ah! Or just, people join in, but it's so funny to finally be able to get to sit down and talk to you about this record because. Uh, the second I brought it up to you, Baron, mm-hmm. you said, oh, I own it on vinyl.
1: I own it on vinyl. I probably have texted you that 80 million times. Uh, 80 million times. <laughs> and then you kept saying,
2: uh, oh, dude, I'm bringing it. I'm going to bring the vinyl. Like, this was like a, like a badge of honor for you. Is that? I, 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 oh, this? You mean maggot brain? Yeah. I own this on, uh, on vinyl. I own it on vinyl. On vinyl. And listen to it on my uh, fucking 1930s record player. Because <laughs> that's how we do it. That's how we do it. <laughs> So let me ask you this. My gramophone. (laughs) What is your history with music? Off air, you were saying you are proud of the fact that you listen to weird music. Explain that.
1: Um, Well, you know, actually, um, even the beatboxing. Like, I've been beatboxing for a long, long time. I probably started, I know that I started in the late 80s because I started beatboxing because of the song Bad by Michael Jackson. Because when I was a kid, I loved that song. Yeah. And we did not have a radio. We did not have a tape player, and I'm like, "How can I listen to the song I like when that's not on TV?" Wait, on how the TV, you, how
2: did you not have a radio or a tape player? You're just did you grow up just like very impoverished? Or um, like-
1: I grew up in a small town in a very very small town in uh, New Mexico called Tucumcari, and so I had the it was my great grandparents that raised me for a little bit. Until my mom came and got me when she got out of college. Long story. We'll get into some of it. <laughs> Perfect. I bet there's some questions that will that'll bring that shit up. Exactly. So we didn't, I as a kid kid, like, you know, I don't think they had a record player. They had a TV, but we didn't have a, like a, you know, a cassette player or anything like that. that. That stuff I didn't get really in my life until I was in middle school and living in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is where I mainly grew up. Yeah. So... We had MTV. I remember watching MTV at the beginning of MTV because it was like the early 80s and stuff. But uh, yeah, we didn't have that stuff. So I just like tried to figure out how to make the, the song, try to do the drums of bad myself.
2: Oh, wow. And I
1: kind of figured out that I could make on my own. I was very young that I could make sounds at the front of my mouth at the same time as sounds in the back of my throat. And that if I could, I could kind of do them differently so i could be like i would be i would be practicing be like and then in my mouth i go cuz it was kind of a it's like it's really fast yeah
2: yeah it's i you're hitting it on the nose so
1: that's what i was doing mostly as a 5 year old walking around so so that means that you've
2: had like music just inside of you in a sense like you just have that that, <clears throat> I don't know, that people like my drummer from the goddamn comedy gym just calls it the feel. It's just music mm. touches you and then you understand it. And so it doesn't make a difference if you've studied it or not. You just understand this is where I come in. This is the, the eight count and you can just find, you know what I yes. mean? It's just you have yes. like rhythm.
1: Well, and I, I you know, grew, grew, in that little small town, I was part of a church community and, um, you know, gospel and, and hymns is a huge part of that yeah. community. Yeah. So it was like I was singing a lot of those songs as a young person, hearing them in church, hearing live music basically multiple times a week, you know, sung in a, a place that had such incredible acoustics. So I could hear – I heard what a choir could sound like. Church together. acoustics Church, church acoustics. <laughs> That's, those are the best acoustics. Church acoustics. And then, uh, and then watching MTV, loving Michael Jackson, loving Prince and kind of coming up with a lot of that stuff and then moving to Vegas there was a little bit more of me listening to hip hop by the I mean I was listening to early hip hop too I was listening to like The Message I remember when that came out Oh wow how old are you by the way I am 38 you're you th- you're my age All right, well, yeah. I'm 39 but yeah so The Message and and then did that evolve
2: into like a tribe called Quest and
1: Well The Message it kind of I kind of stuck with The Message and Melly Mel and then it was Run-DMC and then it was Public Enemy Yeah and so Tribe, a lot of these, a lot of the stuff that was sort of the, if you will, more intellectual, more intelligent hip hop of the like late '80s, early '90s, I didn't come to until later, because no one I knew was listening to that at all. That actually was a big reason. Is a lot of music that I loved that I wish I kept listening to. Yeah. Because now I understand, like, oh, this is the. This is some of the best stuff that ever happened, but I just put it away because no one I knew was listening to Tribe. No one I knew was listening to, like, I'm trying to think of other people, like Wu-Tang Clan. No one I knew was really listening to that. Yeah. No one I knew was really listening to... I'm trying to think of other people. Do you know who uh, uh, J.Ru the Damage is? Oh, yeah, dude. Is it Damaja or Damaja? <laughs> Damaja. I like Damaja. I never heard it Demaja. like that. <laughs> but it's like, I remember that album coming out. I remember... Bone Thugs, Bone Thugs was since they were mainstream. Yeah, because I was in Vegas, which is the West Coast, so of course people were listening to Tupac. People were listening to uh, Dr. Dre. I heard the Chronic. I mean, not the Chronic, but N.W.A. Pretty young. Yeah, uh, straight out of Compton and that that whole album and stuff like that. I didn't hear Eazy-E by himself first, but I remember hearing like N.W.A. and stuff like that in like seventh grade, maybe elementary school, whenever the heck it was happening. And of course, hearing the radio and hearing hip-hop on the radio. So it's like... And then I also kept with Michael Jackson and Prince's Careers, which led me into Quincy Jones kind of territory. Okay. And all the stuff that he did and all the different people that he produced that I loved. Uh, Especially because it's like my favorite genre, I guess. I mean, I love music where people are playing instruments. And so the post-funk, post-disco, pre-R&B era... I'm talking about like kind of that yeah, late some, '80s, early hit '90s. Me with some
2: bands because I might be a little confused of what that is. Well, I'm
1: thinking about like uh, Cool in the Game. Ah, I'm thinking about like the okay. Gap bands, Zap yeah. and Roger. Um, you know, stuff like that era. Um, Sherelle. Um, don't know Sherelle.
3: Sherelle. you know that sounds song?
1: Fantastic. You know that song? Saturday Love. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Love. Me. No, not no, at all. I don't. Okay. Great song. <laughs> is it on this list? Because I'm excited. Not on this list. Um, and then, of course, there was Prince and there's The Time, and then there's like all these different bands that kind of had this p- post funk sound, but then the production was, because you remember the production, like in the early 90s, everything was so uh, reverby. Yeah. There was so much reverb. And then watching movies like Kid and Play, watching things like In Living Color. One of my most influential comedy uh, things is uh, a little known special, series of specials. Called Robert Townsend Partners in Crime. Oh, I, I think I do remember that. I
3: mean,
2: I, we, like, we were, me and my buddy uh, were talking about Hollywood Shuffle the other day. Yeah. So, I mean, that's
1: one of my favorite movies. It's a fantastic movie. Still yeah. holds up, too. Yeah. Um, so, in that vein, I think this was after Hollywood Shuffle that Robert Townsend kind of had a, a, maybe three or four different HBO specials. I think I remember those, yeah. That he hosted, and he would have comedians. So then that was me first seeing people like Tommy Davidson and David Allen Greer, Robin Harris. And then, uh, then he would have musicians. Hammer, before You Can't Touch This, and other people. I can't even remember. Back then it was just, you can touch this. Banch. It was, it was um, <laughs> you can touch you this. You can touch no, this. No, it was um, <laughs> Hammer Don't Hurt Him. I remember that. Turn This Mother Out. We're going to turn this, this
3: mother out.
1: out. <laughs> that, <Yeah. it's>
2: hammer, <laughs> hammer.
1: Yeah, that whole thing, yes. None of this is weird, though. Not you, yet. You said, okay, so where did it turn? Where it turned is high school. Ah. So I was listening to all this stuff. I was listening to. We're
3: living to, on the edge. You can't help yourself from fun.
1: Um, listen to that shit because this I was watch be watching MTV. So I was listening to Aerosmith. I was listening to all that stuff, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all that stuff that was yeah. coming out. Um, I mean, Aerosmith is before them. But it's also like Genesis. I loved Genesis. Sure. Um, I love Peter Gabriel's solo work. Okay. So even, it's Phil Collins' Genesis. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Michael
2: McDonald, Doobie Brothers.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. None (laughs) of this is weird. This is just. And then I went to a performing arts high school in Las Vegas, Nevada. There it is. And then I was a freshman in a world where people were speaking about musical theater in a way I didn't even know musical theater existed right mm. no one i knew was talking about that at all any of the kids i knew we were all listening to dre snoop tupac you know all the standards if you will yeah biggie you know just e- queen latifah just everything that was like you and i t y
3: you gotta let them know
1: you and i t y that's a unity. unity so it's like i was taking in influences from martin from living single sure. from uh in living color uh, the Robert Townsend specials are pre-Deaf Comedy Jam. Okay. And then Deaf Comedy Jam came out, of course, and I was watching the, the fuck out of that. So suddenly I was a freshman in a high school where seniors were talking about musicals, and I did not know anything about them. So I was like, I got to educate myself. I got to, if I'm going to keep up with the popular kids, sure. Here, I got to educate myself about musical theater. And then so I started like checking out CDs from the library and like listening to them. Stuff that I had heard like Les Miserables,
3: Ah, Les Mis,
1: or for short, Miss Saigon. Uh, Angela Weber is like a two bit songwriter. Yeah, who that's what kind I of thought. found his way no into idea. musical theater because yeah. no one was doing rock musicals after hair so it was kind of like he he was at the right place at the right time but he was never really good as far as i'm concerned sure and all of his musicals kind of suck, as far as I'm concerned. i don't really really—I've never really said. I mean, he did Cats, right?
2: He did Cats. All of them are like the yeah, longest, run, but they're all like the longest-running musicals in the history of musical theater. So and if you think about uh, some of the most popular movies right now, Andrew Lloyd Webber is like in your motherfucking face, hey, BV. He's got millions of dollars, <laughs> and he's a knight. Okay, he's a knight. Fuck yeah, dude. he's Sir Andrew. Yeah, but Lloyd you're, a, you're a baron. I
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I was born a baron. Okay? Born a baron. He had to work his way up into becoming a knight. With his bullshit. (laughs) Um, So then suddenly I I liked all these musicals and like Stephen Sondheim and like Sweeney Todd and hearing all this stuff. And so, and then I started to try to find the music that was the bridge, if you will, because I liked the theatricality of musicals, especially as a person who was a young actor and I liked being on stage and I liked being loud and I liked singing. And then I liked black shit. I liked, you know, I was talking like like Quincy Jones and Prince and Michael Jackson and all this stuff, and then so slowly but surely, and also I started getting interested in in jazz in high school as well because I went to a performing arts high school, so there were kids that could actually play instruments. Sure,
2: I, I can imagine. Yeah, that
1: were like, oh, you got to listen to this, and that's how I kind of stumbled upon Earth Wind and Fire, Tower of Power, some of the more kind of funk stuff, and then and then George Clinton and Funkadelic and Parliament and Parliament Funkadelic and P-Funk and all its iterations. I was aware of him. Because Dre sampled so much of his music,
2: yeah, I was. You know what's funny is before you got here, because I was listening to to the album, uh, which I'll just I'll just say it's it's our album is number four seventy nine out of five hundred. It's the third studio album, Maggot Brain, by Funkadelic, released on July 12, seventy one. Produced by George Clinton and recorded at Universal Studios in Detroit. So. What I I was listening to uh, like the uh, Alexa, I was like Alexa, play Funkadelic or play Parliament, and they were she was playing just like uh, and like every other song. I was like, that's Dre, that's fucking this, that's that, that's that's, that's you know N.W. I just heard so yes, you heard the influence much, yeah. So
1: tell me about the first time you heard
2: this record.
1: Well, you know, I, before this record even, I heard like you know, obviously like Atomic Dog was so ubiquitous, and then Snoop used it. When he came out with his own solo album, yes, you know what's my my I name Snoop Dog, and I'm like, oh, I know that song Atomic Dog. I I knew Atomic Dog already, yeah. So when I came to Maggot Brain was a li- again a little later, so I was aware of a lot of the hits, you know, especially the stuff that was later, like it's me 80s, too. 90s, I'm the same. And then Maggot Brain, it wasn't until I became an adult and then I started talking, t- thinking about albums as full pieces of work. So of course getting into jazz and getting into more sophisticated music, even musical theater, because musical theater is a story. Every single song supports a narrative. So it kind of started making me think about songs as storytelling, you know, instead of just something I can snap my fingers to and sing along to. And really good musicians, obviously, are always telling you something about themselves, about the world, about the environment in their music and how they, the order that they put the songs into on an album, especially when this album came out, because this was like you were you had to really think about what what do I want this people to hear first, yeah, and what do I want them to hear last, and we, we you know so you're thinking about like musically how to take people through a journey. You're thinking about it through whatever your lyrics are, whatever the point of a song is, and that all ties together to the the central idea of an album, right? Yeah. So maggot brain, I probably. A couple years ago, I did a show in Denton, Texas, at a rock venue called Rubber Gloves that no longer exists in Denton, Texas. It was like this really cool little place that was next to train tracks. I mean, a train show in the middle of my show. I got heckled by a train. It was kind of romantic and beautiful out there. And two hours, three hours before the show, I'm at the venue because I don't have anywhere else to go. And whoever the manager was put on, on those big ass speakers, the first song of maggot brain put on maggot brain and i got to hear i heard the voice the poem you know mother earth is pregnant y'all have knocked her up and it made me giggle i was like what what is going on here and i didn't realize i recognized the voice like i didn't know it was george clinton that was talking yeah and then suddenly the the song started and it was like because i feel like the first track is like almost like a it's like a combination of a lullaby but also in a sort of a way I feel like it's a representation of the Big Bang in some kind of way. Sure. Where it's like it's got this this that that you know, those three chords that are being boom, doom, 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 and then that guitar solo comes out. Play it in the background, Peter, as he's it, saying this. Just keep it going. Comes out wailing on top of this very simple chord structure. But the passion behind the guitar, the intention behind it, I was like, Whoa. And I was just alone in this this venue hearing this on this great sound system hearing every single detail of it and I was like what the hell is going on and the guy's like oh that's maggot brain and I was like maggot brain he's like yeah funkadelic I'm like this is a Funkadelic song?
2: That, dude, you have the exact same reaction that I had because I was expecting, you know, maggot brain, let's keep a do. Every day you got the maggot brain. <laughs> that's the get kind of chanty. with the maggot brain. You know, we'll get it all down
1: when we're going insane. That's, that's what a lot have. of George Clinton music is like that, and I love it just the same. It, yeah, it's
2: great, but, dude, that's what I was expecting. And I put this on and immediately was like, this is nothing like I was expecting out of George Clinton this mm-hmm. might be one of the most fun experiences I've had like because my eyes were just wide yes. open I had them on the big speakers that I have in the apartment I was blaring it and was completely blown away and that's so cool that you had that exact same experience yeah
1: yeah because you get it again like I think about like how this album was intended to be listening to listen to you think about back in the day when this album came out someone went and got it And then they went home, maybe they had speakers, or maybe there was even a listening booth at the record store, because they had them back then. Yeah, I remember that. And you're putting on these hi-fi, you know, uh, headphones, and then you just like, just go go into this experience. You're like, what is happening right now? And it's like he almost breaks your brain at the front of this whole thing with this this very almost uh, morose, slow lullaby. But it sounds like there's a birth happening in a kind of a way. And I, I take that to the poem since he's talking about mother earth is pregnant. Yeah. And I kind of take it like this is the experience of like a um, a baby growing in the womb and then passing out of the womb at the same time. That's okay. what that first track kind of makes me think of. And then suddenly he's born and it's like ding 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 you know it's, it's uh, can you get to that the second track. And it's like you're so good. you're suddenly in this experience and Listening to this album all the way through is just kind of like, I mean, it it is stylistically. It's like so much variation, so much uh, precision musically. It's it's very, very, I, I mean, I love this album. So that was my first experience hearing it. And then I went and got it, you know, and then listened on to vital. the whole thing on, on vinyl because you won't shut the
2: fuck I up. Go get it. it on vinyl.
1: <laughs> and then I uh, and then I listened to the whole thing. And I was like, this is probably my favorite. Like one of my favorite albums, if not like you know at least my favorite funkadelic album, but like well probably one of my favorite albums. This was this was such an experience for me
2: because uh you it's it's literally it's acid rock. Yes, It's, it's not funk. This is acid rock the the first song cuz if the the it opens with maggot brain and then closes with what is that song called? The armageddon the wor- armageddon yeah we'll get to it but there it's War literate, of armageddon or something it's, like it's, that it's this is there's seven songs on this record two of them being extended musical jams yes. that are basically just these like acid trips but it's but those are just bookending Pretty groovy and funky, soulful, psychedelic experiences. Yeah. It's and, and the, some of the catchiest pop yes. I have ever Crunchy heard. And so, as I was listening to this, I was like, this wasn't what I was expecting from a black artist in the early 70s, especially George Clinton. Mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and if people don't know how we got to being. Funkadelic, George Clinton, because I was also saying this, what the fuck does George Clinton do on this record? Like, what is he, why is he the guy? Because it's Eddie Hazel, it's this person, the singer. I don't hear George unless he's, like, talking. Like, I want to get to the bottom of what the fuck George actually does. But Mm -hmm. he's, this is what I love about George. He started a doo-wop group called the Parliaments in New Jersey in the late 50s. Then by the 60s, George became a writer for Motown in Detroit, and the Parliaments had achieved some success, Okay. And so then that inspired, he was inspired by Hendrix Zappa Santana, which I heard in this record in all the 60s acid rock. And then they became Funkadelics. And the Parliaments eventually became Parliament, a soulful pop vocal group. And then George Clinton just combined them together after some legal shit and made Parliament Funkadelic, abbreviated as P Funk. -funk. So when I mentioned this, and this is what I love about you, Mm -hmm. is that you actually have a show called The New Negroes. Yes. Which is basically saying, we are black comedians, but mm-hmm. we are not the deaf comedy comedians. Like, we're not, I mean, that's that's like the most simplest say,
1: But It's if you a simplistic wanna... kind of way. I mean, you know, the thing about Deaf Comedy Jam is, what, and what I love about Deaf Comedy Jam, is that it became, if you will, a location for you to experience blackness. That's what I'm trying to do with New Negroes. Now, New Negroes is me stealing a, a, a term from like, turn of the century, Harlem Renaissance, stuff like that. Yeah. But it's standing on this exact same idea in which it was a, an idea, the New Negro Movement, which the Harlem Renaissance is under the umbrella of the New Negro Movement. It's about black people just speaking. You don't have to, you. all you have to do is exist and tell your story, and that in in and of itself is a political act. Wow. Because you are redefining what people think. You are... Standing in your truth, as they say, stuff like that, and so George Clinton and Funkadelic, you know, because I guess it was like he he couldn't get the rights to the name Parliament, the Parliament. He, I think he got
2: he says he got sued, and and so he changed, he kept changing it. But I think Parliament Funkadelic or just P Funk is so fucking
1: cool. Yes,
2: it is. It It really is. Like just the word Funkadelic, like that's why I'm saying I was not expecting this. And so we we did a little bit of research and. Uh, George Clinton is quoted as saying that he never wanted... This album is because he never wanted to be pigeonholed as a black artist of mm-hmm, their time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, like I mentioned, you have the new Negroes. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Yes. Have you ever had to do roles that made you uncomfortable as a black person? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And because, you know, the thing about these labels of blackness, a lot of these labels are not made by black people. Yeah, It's sort of like... It's the, and that's the, what the whole point of the New Negroes is you tell your own story louder than the stories that are being told about you. Yeah. So it's like all the identities, if you will, that black people have have been put on black people by others. And black people will take them on sometimes or reject them or whatever, but it's like we're people. So it's kind of like what George Clinton is doing here because he's also credited along with Hendrix, and you know, obviously you hear the Hendrix influence. Oh my same God. With, yes. Same with Zappa with the whole, like in the Fantasia. And, Hendrix is, and, and George Clinton are both people that are considered to be um, planting early seeds of what became this idea of Afrofuturism. Okay. So people will say, you know Sun Ra, the jazz, he's like a yeah, jazz. Yeah, I've heard of him. I don't know space his Space is the though. place. And it's like Sun Ra was, the, was considered one of the first people to kind of envision black people in the future and black people in space. And so Hendrix is standing on that idea. Uh, took it further. Um, George Clinton took it further as well, where it's like there's these sci-fi references. It's all about, you know, the spaceship, mothership and all these different things and creating this mythology that sort of stands as its own identity and stands as its own idea. And that's kind of what they're doing, I guess you could say. Sure. But of course, all of that can only be a reaction to people trying to put you in a box all the damn time. So it's like, yeah, I mean, that's been my my whole career in stand-up has always been like I'm not appropriate somehow. You know, I don't fit a certain box. And I, that has to do with how much the industry, I guess you uh, you could say, how much the industry has um, become mostly marketing. So it's not necessarily about who is good and who's not. It's about what sells and what doesn't. A 100%. And so it's always – if something is easy to define and it's easy to say what it is, it's easier to sell it. And if it's outside of the box, that's a harder sell. So I've always kind of been outside of the box and harder to sell. And I guess that, you know, I've kind of folded that into my identity, which, which becomes internalized, you know, self-hatred or whatever the hell. But it's kind of like when I became a stand-up and, and an actor, there's been a plenty of times where I'm just like, oh, I don't want to do that. like or I. But, you know, you need the money.
2: Do you have anything in particular that just sticks out to you that really just made you just like a student? Maybe looking back at it now that you're just like, man, what the fuck? Like your Hollywood shuffle moment, which is like, you know, can you be more black? And you're like, what the fuck, dude?
1: I mean, you know, I, 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 I feel like it happens mostly in auditions more than anywhere else. Yeah. Where it's like I've gone out for characters that are like, you know, Thug One and stuff like that. Just like Hollywood Shuffle, where it's kind of like. Oh okay I'm I'm the first thug. <laughs> you know. 3 3 thugs came. One brings gold, one brings frankincense, one, know, I brings, was really, one brings really. I, I was really identifying with thug 2. I mean I know.
2: Can I go in for that one?
1: Okay. No, I'm thug. One. That's a little bit more in my lane. Um yeah, I mean it's just kind of like there's stuff especially earlier in my career where it's like I'm trying I'm thinking about a, a show I did on uh MTV. Uh, I want to say it was called The Game Killers is what it was called okay it was like an axe ad that had become its own reality show (laughs) it was very strange (laughs) and I kind of I played a character that's supposed to be a comedian but the whole thing was that like I it's a lot of people they're on a fake dating show but they don't know it so it's like a guy who's on a date with a girl he doesn't know the girl's an actor he doesn't know that all these people that they start interacting with are plants I being one of them yeah so it's sort of like I stepped into a couple of different stereotypes I I, black stereotypes comedian stereotypes that I didn't care for but I was like oh I need to you know I need you need th- the money th- I need this money <laughs> yeah, I still need to make it myself somehow so it's kind of like and that's a big thing which sort of like I don't feel like that my authenticity if you will has always been in question for people again people put things on if you're black you're supposed to be this 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 and this and since I don't easily fit into those categories or I don't feel like it in my essence sometimes I say that like if you're black there's certain places you can be from that are like the ivy league of blackness like, it's like, you know, people say, oh, I went to Harvard, I went to Stanford, I went to, you know, Princeton. That's recognizable. If you say, I'm from Brooklyn, I'm from Chicago, I'm from Atlanta, people know what that means. There's a context there. Wow, yeah. I'm, that's like, you know, that's the Harvard and the Princeton and the Stanford of blackness. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm from Harlem or whatever. It's the MIT of blackness, you know. Fuck. And I'm from Vegas. I'm from a small country town in New Mexico and then moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. So that's like the ASU of being black. Yeah. Of being black. What is that, DeVry? People don't know. People don't know. <laughs> It's a satellite campus. That's, that's what gets trippy about labels. Like I have a friend who's a, a writer, right, a novelist, and they want to put her book in African-American literature. There is no African-American literature. There's just literature. Yeah. Some of it is written by African-Americans, and it might speak to that experience, but it doesn't mean that if you aren't black, you can't read it. Yeah, of course. That you can't understand it because anybody, I think, any artist is looking for the universal inside the specific if that makes any sense that makes perfect sense yeah and that's what people like rock Chappelle, patrice could do is they could take s- like universal ideas and then have a proof about this universal idea from a very specific experience or have a proof about a specific idea from a very universal experience yeah you know like how, how old is 14 really like things like <laughs> controversial things you know sure. welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute
0: So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe for Grind podcast.
1: I mean, look, and we're talking about Def Comedy Jam, too. So it's like, again, anytime there's a genre that appears, it becomes a space for people to go to. Yeah. So it's like Def Comedy Jam yielded brilliant, brilliant, influential stand-up comedians. I mean, we're talking about Bernie Mac. Bernie we're talking Mac, about one of the most uh, Chappelle. Iconic, yeah. We're talking about Wanda Sykes. We're talking about all of these really fantastic comedians. And then also, there are the people who are like, I got to be a certain way to get on that show. Sure. And that – is true for music as well you got to fit into a certain genre so if you are breaking it you know because that's a big thing about like uh, soul and r&b were uh movements that were grown out of a certain kind of music but then they became prisons in a kind of a way for certain artists who wanted to expand out of that i believe that i mean look at the beatles how many times did they change what their style was. Look at Miles. You mentioned jazz earlier. Miles Davis has kept creating. And Miles could do that because, well, I mean, he was Miles Davis. But then also, like, in jazz, you're allowed to kind of break your... Genre, because jazz can be anything. any Whatever you want, yeah. But then Funkadelic, and it's kind of, I think about like Fishbone. Fishbone, who is another one of my favorite bands. Love Fishbone. But they've had a hard go with it because they're not easy to, to classify. Yeah. You can't say that Fishbone is one freaking thing. There are a lot of things. I think that George Clinton does a lot of things as well. Let's dive
2: into this record. Let's okay? do it. So like we said, it opens with Maggot Brain. Yes. Peter, just play some of Maggot Brain because this is... So beautiful, as you mentioned, George Clinton talks about what what could be the has a very apocalyptic tone. You know, he's he's talking about how Mother Earth is pregnant for the third time, which uh, after some research could mean about World War One, World War Two, and Vietnam.
3: Mm. Um, and then
2: he explains he's going to rise above, or else we're going to drown in this shit. Oh, and shit. then Eddie Hazel's guitar starts. Now, do you know the story about this? Mm-mm. About okay. One of the coolest fucking things. All right. So in 2014 memoir, Brothers, George Clinton's memoir, Brothers B, comma, yo, like, George, ain't that fucking kind of hard on you? I love that. Um, So he said, this is what he says. uh, Where are we? Saying, uh, Eddie and I were in the studio tripping like crazy, but also trying to focus our emotion. I told him to play like his mother had died, Ooh. to picture that day what he would feel Ooh. and how he would make sense of his life, how he would take a measure of everything that was inside of him and let it out through his guitar. And Eddie knew immediately that he understood what George Clinton was saying, and then you could hear that in these guitar no I mean, like, dude, there is a point in the song. Let's go to... Um, play uh minute 4 uh second 25 till about 46, 46 446 because you can literally hear the guitar crying it is not even gently weeping not even gently at all like to take something so tragic the idea of your mom passing away and then I forgot to add also there's another part is that he says I want you to have her the first half play like your mom died, the second half like she came back to life. Woo! Hence why it just becomes, like this fuzz guitar becomes this this range of emotion. I'm listening to this in my car and started tearing up because I started feeling it because it was so intense.
1: I'm, That's I'm saying, the experience I had with Rubber Gloves where I was like, whoa. Just It went into my heart and my head at the same time. Yeah, and, and so
2: at around minute seven second four it comes back um it's just to take something so sad and to get that out of somebody and of course like they are on drugs so (laughs) you can feel that that's Uh, the delicate part but through your acting or comedic career has Mm -hmm. there ever been like a personal personally tragic story that you've had to tap into to make everyone else
1: feel that emotion right along with you Ooh, interesting question um Suffice it to say that, like I get afraid of my own darkness, if you will, I get afraid of my own intensity of my own power, if you will, so i I pull the punches sometimes on things that I would like to go further with, and a lot of that has to do with again my own my own shit, but you know you you mentioned someone like Patrice O'Neill, and Patrice could just go there, yeah, he could i mean like you know talk about standing in your own truth, I remember a friend of mine saying it really well like. You know, I didn't agree with anything he said and I never stopped laughing. Because it's true to him. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you agree with him. He can make a fantastic case and make it funny and make it stick to your bones, you know, like he reached into your heart and put some stuff in there. That's what Patrice could do. I question whether or not I have that ability. I think that's the point of comedy in a lot of ways. When sometimes people be like, What do you talk about in your comedy? And I go, Like I think that's the point is to find out what the hell it is that I want to talk about. Yeah. So it's like these are the things that I'm trying to move toward. I've talked about some stuff like I met my father for the first time a uh, couple years ago, my my biological father, and I've talked about it on stage. It makes people really bummed out. That's the thing. Like there's certain things where I, if I, I start to talk about them, audiences like really clam up or like – you know, their butts get tight or they get like, ugh, and then I never want to do that joke again because I'm like, oh, I made everyone uncomfortable in some sort of way. So it's like what I need to do
2: is dig deeper, is go dig further, deeper and yeah. go
1: further into it.
2: Yeah. Lean the fuck into that. Is and lean, if into you lean into to that. Then nobody because nobody shares that experience. I mean, people share that they, there are other people that have like lost their father or, you know, he left at a young age and then he came back. So they will identify with that and then they'll, that'll touch them more than everybody else. But you'll be able to make it entertaining but you have to trust in yourself as a as
1: a hysterical individual and just go there and the trust is the thing that like you know it's sort of like i've had that trust and i've lost it and i've had it and i've lost it again i'm in a place where i've lost it again and that's probably just because i'm not getting up a lot that always happens but you're working because i'm working but it's like if i don't go up for like two three months I feel like I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Why are you? How,
2: you can't. You can't just take a. I could. I could never imagine going two or three months.
1: Dude, when I, I did a show, I was on a show in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, shot in Vancouver, British Columbia, one of the most gorgeous. That's what I've heard. Cities in the world, if not North America, you know, not just North America. I could, I've never been more depressed in my life, and it had specifically to do with the fact that I did not do stand up for five months. I've never. Ever gone that long without doing stand up? I had no outlet. I was incredibly isolated. I was sitting in a freaking dark room where the internet only worked in the bedroom. So I would wake up, pick up my laptop, put it on my lap, and then get on the internet. And then suddenly it'd be eight at night. And I'm like, I never got out of bed. And I would do that for multiple days in a row. Fuck. And I was just, I was in a dark place. I didn't realize that until I was telling a friend about it. (laughs) And I was just kind of like, hey, what? is there a name for like I don't want to be alive. It's like you want to kill yourself? Whoa, calm down. I don't want to kill myself. I just don't want to exist anymore. I wish I never existed. Is that something? You know, it's <laughs> like I think you're depressed and I was like, "Oh my god, is this depressed? I had no just the concept of f- assuming that this was a depression had never even crossed my mind." Yeah. And then that Specific, just someone saying, I think you're depressed, like changed everything for me because it was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta take, I gotta take, pull myself up on my own bootstraps. It was like literally, I put my laptop in the living room and that changed my life for the rest of the time I was there. Just gotta get out of bed. Because I would get out of bed. Yeah. Simply get out of bed. And then I'm like, well, I'm out of bed. Might as well take a shower. Well, I'm showered. Might as well put some clothes on. <laughs> well, I'm dressed. Might as well go outside. Yeah. And then it was beautiful outside. I was still alone. Yeah. <laughs> You know,
2: but if but if feel, yeah, dude. I you know, I we were talking about, that if tragedy and, and using that, like I, I talk about, I'm starting to really talk about the car accident I was in where I lost Angelo back in yes. 2012. Yes. and I don't care if if they get uncomfortable when I say because I do a bit about how getting the dog has changed my life and I'm not a depressed person anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I love it and I love to feel them get uncomfortable because that means that I'm hitting something and I'm being real. And I still have yet to go into details, and I'm still trying to figure out how to take that story and make it funny, whether it's a one-man show or it's going to be just like a, like a 20-minute story in my set. Yeah. But it, it's, it's very powerful when you, when you can really tap into that, and especially when you can identify that you are depressed. Yeah. Because a lot of the times I was just living and not – like I was isolating from the world, and this is when I have a TV show. I didn't leave my apartment, and I just thought, "Oh, I'm just resting," and it feels worse even,
1: because you're like you're you're like, "Oh, I, I'm on like that was what it was like in Vancouver. I was employed when the recession happened. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was, my mom every almost every month was about to get kicked out of her house in Vegas, and I was able to pay my mom's rent and bills for two years. Yeah. And I've never been more depressed than when I was working during the recession. And I'm like, I don't even have a right to feel this way. I don't know how many people I know that would, would love to be in my shoes I, right now. Dude, I
2: couldn't tell you how many famous comedians that I'm friends with that are miserable. Because you know <laughs> what it is? Because they, you know what? It's funny because they have all the money. They have all the money. They don't have to worry about anything. And then they're still sad.
1: Those are the things that and – I, and I hate to say that, oh, I've been early to certain subjects. But it was like I was trying to talk about being depressed and mental health as a black person before the culture was talking about it. So I backed off about it, backed off because I didn't see any other examples out there. It wasn't until after Black Lives Matter started that people started talking about self-care because that was a big thing about Black Lives Matter is like, hey, take care of yourself, respect yourself, love yourself. That's actually a part of what it means to be alive. And I, as a, as a general idea that was out there in the culture for black people, it wasn't yet. Because when I was talking about being depressed or trying to go to therapy, like, just black people, the way that I grew up, we didn't think about that. We didn't talk about that stuff. You know, it wasn't just, it wasn't even in my mind that that was something to happen. And I had to um, unpack myself from my own racial baggage about therapy when I started going, because someone was like, you should go to therapy. I'm like, that white people shit? <laughs> Isn't that for white people? Yeah. To be like, well, to walk out every, after an hour and go like, well, at least I'm still white. Like, that's what I thought <laughs> therapy was. <laughs> I'm going to sit in the room and talk to somebody, but when I I do that in front of an audience, you know, so, and obviously it's been very helpful, but it's kind of like, I didn't even know I had that baggage about it, you know, Um, so it's kind of like, and I've talked about some, I try to talk about some of the stuff on stage, but of course, the trust about letting it go to that dark, deep place, and then trusting that I can bring it back, I, I waver on that, I get it, I I feel like if I don't have a strong joke, I shouldn't even say anything.
2: Well, you gotta imagine if, if if George Clinton doesn't tell Eddie to, to do that I mean, would he have gotten the same sound out of that guitar for for Megamix? I don't Absolutely think so. I don't think so. Because one, not. you add the drugs, dude. His guitar solo was so strong that he turned down in the recording the drums and the bass and the organs. He turned everything down, so it's literally Eddie's guitar. It's, and it's a it's a ripping it's, solo. It's ripping. It is. It's a good, perfect way to say it. it rips. I, I I put that up there with any guitar solo I've ever heard in my life. And then that brings us into. Can you get to that? Yes. Uh, I love this. Play the intro, Peter. Because Because if you think about it, this is acoustic funk. I love this song so much. It sounds like this gathering of voices, Mm -hmm. and it adds up to so much of what they're saying. You know, I once had a life, or rather, life Life had had me. I love that line. I was one among many, or at least I seem to be. Well, I read on an old quotation in a book just yesterday. said, gonna reap just what you sow. The debts you make, you have to pay. Can you get to that? And then... I think the best part uh, of the whole. So there's two part favorite parts is is the deep bike the deep deep voice guy. I wanna know. I wanna know. I oh, wanna yeah. know. That's that's like I I just play that Peter. Just play. I wanna know. <laughs> just it's so good. Also the the second vo- uh, verse to me it's just the lyrics just are hitting. You can hear like this mm-hmm. almost. Uh, I don't want to call it like. Hip hoppy feel, but when she's like, you know, I recollect with a mix of emotions all the good times we used to have. Yeah, but we were making preparations for the coming separate separate I Can't fuck it up, Jesus Christ! <laughs> Change that, Peter. Just play the fucking track. <laughs> So, this is a a, a reworking of an old Parliament song. I don't know if you know that. Did you know that? I did not know that. It's called What You've Been Growing. Mm. Uh, What What you've been growing. And this seems to be a song about a breakup, okay? Mm. Uh, Can you get to that basically means, can you dig it? And I think these are probably some of the best lyrics on the album. Um, People are saying it could be a protest song. When you go through what is written in there, it, it, to me, just sounds like a breakup. So let's talk about checking out on someone before they've checked out on you. Because that's one of my favorite mm. places uh, in this where it says, uh, you base your life on credit and your loving days are done. Checks you sign with love and kisses later come back signed insufficient unsufficient, funds. Insufficient funds. Yeah. Can you, uh, is there a time where mentally you said to yourself, I'm no longer in this, well before the person or the situation was aware?
1: Oh, absolutely. There's plenty of times. Plenty of times What's one that sticks out Well um, I'm gonna This person will remain unnamed Please no You don't have to ever say But I met a woman recently uh, On set Over at Over at Grace and Frankie Or as I like to call it Granky (laughs) Granky (laughs) Is a makeup artist That's from The town That an ex of mine is from And I asked if she knew her And she's like I went to high school with her And so Suddenly I'm talking about this person You know This woman hadn't seen her Since high school I dated her as an adult, so she can't even imagine her. She's like, Wow, she's sixteen in my head. I'm like, Yeah, well we were in our thirties when we dated. So it's kind of like Definitely that's happened to me because you know you ever heard of attachment theory? No, I haven't. What is it? There's a book it's called Attached. I highly recommend it if you if you ever want to try to be in any kind of relationship with any person. So I guess it's a bunch of psychologists and sociologists that developed this as a theory of thinking about babies and how parenting affects the personality types of babies. Okay. But, of course, that stuff holds up until you are an adult. And they saw that it still applied to adults. Because in some ways, when you're in a relationship with someone, you're asking them to reparent you in some kind of way. Your parents are the ones who are the architects of what you understand intimacy to be. A hundred percent. So if you... Yeah, I believe this. There are there are a couple of main uh, archetypes of attachment, right? Uh, attachment styles, if they call them. Um, avoidant. Anxious. The combination of anxious-avoidant. Secure. And disorganized. Now, disorganized, you don't have to worry about unless you're a paranoid schizophrenic, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're trying to love a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, secure. Who the hell is secure? I don't even know. It's kind of amazing. Nobody's secure. So... Avoidant and attached are the result of – I mean, I'm sorry, avoidant and uh, anxious. If you had a kind of a parent that was hot and cold that sometimes was really warm and then other times was not and then you never knew when that was going to happen – and you, you just couldn't get a sense of how they felt about you because you always are getting mixed messages, yeah. it creates this uncertainty about things. It creates this feeling like the, the, the rug is going to be pulled from under your feet, that the other shoe is going to drop, that the ceiling, the sky is going to fall, and that creates an anxious attachment where you start to not trust what you thought was true. Sometimes you might get another piece of information. And you go, oh, my God, everything I thought was true is now untrue, and I have to know what's what. That's an anxious style of attachment. So when you get triggered, if you will, your attachment style makes you want more clarity. It makes you want reassurance. Yeah. An avoidant is the opposite side of that. An avoidant is a person who was probably raised by people who never really said how they felt, kind of kept you at arm's distance, stuff like that. So you know how to be intimate through an arm's distance. And avoidants are always single. Because what avoidants do, and I am an avoidant. I I think I'm an
2: avoidance too. I already can tell.
1: What avoidants do is we want intimacy. We recognize intimacy. We want to be with someone. But at the same time, we think that something is intrinsically broken about us and that anyone who would want to be with us is wrong. And so at some point we start to go, you know, I can't be what you want me to be as if there's some sort of idea of a person that you should be for this person to love, which underneath that is I'm not right. There's something about me that's wrong. Yeah. How can you love someone who's wrong? Yeah. That's what the avoidant attachment style oh, is, Oh, that's right? me, dude. You're, you, just, you just summed up me. And anxious and, and anxious and avoidant people always end up together over and over and over again, over and over again, because avoidant people are always single. Yeah. So like an anxious person is like, an anxious person gets with a secure person, they're set. An avoidant might still have problems. I kind of have a combination because my mom gave me the anxious stuff and my grandma was raised by my mom and my grandma gave me kind of the avoidant stuff. So sometimes I want to know, I want clarity, I want reassurance. And then sometimes I'm like, you know what, I can't be who you want me to be. I'm just going to go and take a walk and, you know, get out of here. So, you know, all that is to bring up that this relationship I was in, it was a perfect combination of that. She was very anxious. I was very avoidant. So anytime she wants reassurance, I'm putting my guard up. Yeah, I'm shutting down. Yeah, and psychologically, there was I want I want to be gone. I don't want to be there. So we even broke we broke up over text. Oh God, it was like you know it was like it was like in a conversation where it's like she wanted me to come over, and I'm like you know I'm not going to come over. And she's like, do you even want to do the city board? I'm like, no, I don't. And that was like the literally the way we broke up the worst possible way Fuck. to break up yeah that's but we were we were kind of we weren't a good couple when i look back at it now i also see that like there's a lot of again because you're trying to rewrite whatever story happened to you when you were a kid so it's kind of like i'm projecting my mom on her she's projecting her dad on me so it's kind of like there was it was doomed from the start which is probably why we were even attracted to each other yeah what's hotter than doing it on the Viking ship, that's going to sink. <laughs> oh, shit, this Titanic is going down. Yeah. We better get a swerve on.
3: Mm-hmm. Hit that. it, band. Can get to get that.
2: I want to know. We better be playing that, Peter. Uh, that goes into another song, which uh, I think you were talking about time the signature. Hit it and quit it. Yes. Okay. Uh, play Probably the, one of my favorite songs on the side. I mean, how could you not love it? Play the intro, Peter. It's just insane how fucking catchy this song is, how powerful this is. It's just so fucking good, man. And here's the other
1: thing, and this this song, and it goes back to "Can You Get to That" too, because what one of the things I love about this album is the use of voices and how he uses voices, not just as singing, but like that woman doing that high pitch, you know? It's so it's like hypnotic and piercing, yes. And it's like, well, how did he know that that was gonna sound good? You know, even in Can You Get To That, there's all these different levels of voices, and some people's are high, and someone's got that really low bass. But I want to like, know. It's like just a, he, he created a symphony, an orchestra, with all the different styles of voices yes. inside of the songs as well. I can't agree with you more. Um, this song is, is so magical.
2: Peter, play it when the verse drops in. It's just the way this guy is singing right here. Can you shake it to the east? Can you shake it to the west? It is just... So it fucking good. You can shake it for dinner. My fucking God. And then the organ solo comes in. And then when you get back into the verse again, it just it's it just keeps growing. He's adding yeah. these layers and the organ gets stronger. The voices get stronger. You, like there is no way you could not dance to this song. like Absolutely. I was as I wrote when I heard it for the first time, I just couldn't not dance. I was getting amped in my fucking seat. So this is a song, hit it and quit it. That's a famous saying, right? Yeah. so have you ever been uh, have you, has there ever been a sexual experience where you wanted more of that and afterwards she was like, nah, I'm good.
1: Oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, which one? You know, I was thinking about this recently. Back in New York, I I met this girl who – she was uh, like a a server at this place where there was comedy shows, and I met her there. She was from Vegas as well. And, like, we had a really interesting connection and, uh, you know, went on a couple dates. And uh, it was at the beginning of text messaging. Oh, I remember those days. And so, like, I went to school in Boston after growing up in Vegas – so instant messenger was like a huge thing for me because it was a free way to keep in touch with people that were across the country. Yeah. So like writing text, if you will, to communicate was not abnormal to me. And uh, I was texting her a lot, which was, by the way, one of the things she said when she broke up with me is like, you text me too much. Uh, <laughs> the first time a woman has ever said that to yeah. a dude, like you text me too much. I'm breaking up. Which is up so with weird you. for an avoider. Uh, uh, and avoid <laughs> she and she we you know we we had a date and then we finally like you know did the deed and i um this is what i pulled out of my as she was leaving the next morning <laughs> i'm laughing because what i did was so stupid uh i put on the song when will i see you again by babyface as her exit music Play that Peter We're asking a <laughs> lot Just play, play Play that fucking song And then Never saw her uh, again That's not true She broke up with me at a place At least she did it Face to face She like We went to lunch She's like You know what I don't want to see you anymore And I'm like uh, what? <laughs> and I definitely wanted more I wanted to continue to see her Um That was just one instance There's a lot of them,
2: yeah But let's let's take it away from sex Are there some things in your life Where you're like, man I wanted to get out of here Like there's like You just You want to get in and out As fast as possible Anything that makes you That uncomfortable That you just like I just can't
1: Honestly, concerts Really? I love music I hate concerts You get tired quick it's because there's uh, you know who they let in the concerts who? literally anyone that can buy a ticket like anyone well, that I mean, can that's buy how a it ticket works, dude. That's, they let in there they need their money there's and... too many damn people in there yeah and they're stepping on me and they're spilling their beer on me and they're elbowing me and like trying to like incorporate me into whatever the hell I, like it's just too many people in an enclosed space and i have never liked it I don't I don't have that whole like, oh the music rushes over me and I'm there. I can do that with really good sound equipment at home if yeah. I want it. And so and also the thing that I hate more than anything else about concerts are people who work at concert venues. They're all kind of dicks They're They're a little all, bit. But that's part of what happens because, you know, fans of music are so voracious that they will try to be you know, amateur con to try to get backstage. Oh, yeah, I've done it. And so it's kind of like all of these concert venue employees <laughs> are, they're, they're security. They're like bodyguards for whoever's backstage, and they treat everyone with the equal amount of suspicion and disgust. <laughs> and I hate being treated that way when I go to a place to see a, a show. Was there a
2: concert that, that you could say in particular that really set this in motion? Like you were like, all right, this is it. This is the last one that I'm going to go to.
1: Ooh, um whew, That's a hard one. I mean like I yeah, I went to Coachella like a long time ago. Why? Um I could never the idea. Someone of that. took me as a as a as a present. And I wasn't performing, I just went to it and I didn't even know that it existed. And it was just so damn overwhelming. Did you have an outfit? Did you have your Coachella? No, because outfit? I didn't know. I was hot. I was wearing too many damn layers. <laughs> I was walking around in a linen suit and a parasol, and I was like, what the hell's going on here? You would wear that. And a freaking Cuban cigar just kind of like, well, well it's the funk, kids. <laughs> um, now, I'm trying to think of other places, clubs. I've never been a club guy. Clubs suck, dude. And what? I was semester in England when I was uh, in junior year of college, yeah. and we tried to go to this club, and I, I went in there, and I just remember it was dark, smoky, and loud as hell. I was like, I'm... Gone. I am leaving. <laughs> I'm not a big party guy, too. <clears throat> like, the way I go to a party, I show up to a party, right? I go as far to the back of the party as possible. I turn around and then I start saying goodbye to people. <laughs> I go, I turn around and I go, good night, good night, good night, and I get the hell out of there. It's brilliant. I got social anxiety,
2: you could say. I do, so do I, but I, like, we both just went to a friend's thing yesterday in different times. Yes. And, like, I, I went in there, I didn't know anybody, and I just found, I saw two guys talking, and I was like, they look cool. I'm going to talk to them. I talked to them for an hour, ate some dip, and I was fucking out. So I got it. Same. I, I hit it, and I quit it. Yeah. This goes right into you and your folks, me yeah. and my folks. Uh, this yes. sounds like a Sly in the Family Stone song.
1: Yeah, and there's some elements in uh, Can You Get to That that sound a little sly, too. Sure. I mean, you could argue, some people argue that, like, James Brown, Sly in sly, sly the Family, and, of course, uh, George Clinton are kind of like... They took funk to this other level before, you know, because they were kind of creating it. Oh, I wanted to tell you this, too. Please. Do you know what the origins of the word funk is? No, please. Um, apparently, it comes from a Swahili word that is about a f- specific kind of sweat. They have a word for the kind of sweat you get from hard work or from focus, and then they have a word for the sweat that you get from dance and sex and that's funk that's the positive sweat that's the good sweat and that's where the word funk is a derivative of that word oh wow fuck yeah dude I mean so, funk yeah yeah
2: fun, <laughs> funk yeah i love funk sweat uh, this is it's something that you would you would think is just like just a repeated chant if you and your folks love me and my folks like me and my folks love you and your folks i love that shit but then it, it, then when it breaks into this the bridge or which you could call the chorus or the verse I don't even know because it's, there's, it really is like the everything sounds he plays like with it, that structure he plays like that, with yeah. that structure. it becomes this soulful, very positive message, but in our fears, we don't learn to if we don't learn to trust each other, and if in our f- tears, we don't learn to share with your brother, you know that hate is going to keep on multiplying, and you know the man is going to keep right on dying. What I really stuck out is this. also is a song... It's a social commentary on class system. The rich got a big piece of this and that. The poor got a big piece of roaches and rats. Can you get to that? That's at the end section. Peter, just play some of this fucking song. It's just so goddamn good. What is your relationship with money? And have Mm. you ever had a period where you weren't sure how you were going to make it to the next day?
1: Absolutely, man. I mean, I grew up poor. So... I have a lot of, I guess you could say, internalized ideas about me and money that have, that I'm still working on. So, you know, I mentioned that show that I worked on in Vancouver. And um, that ended. And it took a while. And so I came back to Los Angeles. I had moved to Los Angeles when I got this show. And I came back to L.A. And I didn't work for two and a half years at pretty much at all. And I ran out of money. And I just blamed myself because I've always been bad with money. And I was like, ah oh, crap. Now, I came to find out that um, the gentleman that I had hired as my business manager had stolen a large amount of this money. Fuck. So I pressed charges, blah, 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 warrant out for his arrest, in, and also found that he had a warrant in Texas, too, which I should have known that shit before I even hired him. But I was so afraid that I was like, I was so happy to have someone that could handle my money since I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, so I'll just trust this dude. But I was the perfect Mark as far as, as, as he was concerned. So, like, I mean, this was my first year in Los Angeles even. So it's like I had a show that got canceled. I was going out for these auditions, but everything sucked. Everything was kind of like not who i am and i couldn't figure out how to turn myself into what i needed to be to continue to work but at the same time i was resistant to that idea so it was sort of like i hate auditioning i've never liked auditioning i don't even think i'm a good auditioner yeah so it's kind of like i was in this place where i was trying to figure out what i could do i'm like i can't afford to be in la anymore i can't go back to new york because that's just embarrassing so I need to I need to move to a completely different city and be the funniest dude in Produce when I become a manager at whatever grocery store I find Publix here I come <laughs> you know what I mean watch out Kroger <laughs> it's me Freddie Kroger <laughs> um, so yeah I mean that was like two and a half and I, I the one day the first time that I was like you know what because I got really depressed and I was like you know what. I need to just figure out what I'm going to do. And I remember leaving my apartment and I walked down to this coffee bean. I got myself a coffee, you know, new lease on life. I come back home and on the taped to my front door, my front door, I was like in an apartment building. So you have to go through multiple gates to get to my door. Yeah. Which means that a manager let whoever this person was in taped to my front door was a summons from Boston University, my alma mater, who had uh, sued me for a loan that had defaulted and not only had they sued me but there was already a court uh date that had happened that i didn't show up to wow. so my failure to show meant that they were awarded twice the amount of what i owed it was $4000 they sued me for i didn't show up so they were awarded an $8000 reward and when i called they were like we'll take 65 and i'm like i don't have six <laughs> i don't
2: have i don't have six or five or five <laughs>
1: So it was kind of like I literally fell to the ground, and I was like, that's it. I'm done. I was like, I, I can't. I was in too much debt, and people were coming for me. I was being, I'm being sued now. My credit score was three. So it was kind of like I got to figure out how to get out of Los Angeles, go somewhere, get a job. And it kind of was like another year of me just taking whatever odd job anyone was giving me. I was working the road a little bit. Yeah. But like, didn't have enough credits to like really work the road. Some clubs would book me as a headliner. You know, people stop booking people as a feature. Like, unless you're opening for someone very famous, like it's impossible to get feature work at a club. Like, it's always going to be someone local, which is fine. But as somebody who wasn't at the credits of a headliner, but couldn't afford to only be a feature, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. So that lasted for a while until. I don't even remember how it happened. I just decided to take advantage of some connections that I had, and I ended up getting a job writing at writing sketches at Funny or Die. And then I had that thing, and it was going to last for three months. It was like a preliminary period. And then it was going to end, and then in September that it ended, I had road gigs every weekend. And then, yeah, and that was like the first time in like almost three years. And I'm like, I know what I'm doing for the next four months it was and just and that security
2: go. must have just felt so fucking great. It to- did.
1: And in the middle of that, I auditioned for Grace and Frankie. Wow. It was like right at the me being like, I got to change everything, and I had this work, and I felt okay. So when I went to audition for it, this, for Grace and Frankie, this desperation that was essentially embedded in every move I made was gone. So I was able to relax, yeah, and actually be good (laughs) instead of like just I fucking
2: need this, please, God. Basically, but then, but then also you have the show that's coming out now, and I mean you're still on Grace and Frankie, um, like so you're so do you like because of what you had been through? Do you just hold on to money now, or are you do you
1: you know? Well, you know, and it's you know my priorities are different now because I'm married and have a child and another one on the way, so it's kind of like. Yes, I'm holding on to money in a different way. Um, the whole experience of being robbed was my wake-up call, if you sure. will, my quote-unquote bottom for my financial feelings, where it's like I just have to, fo- I have to face these debts. I have to face these collectors. I have to face this shame that I have because I was raised in a house where it was like the only people that I'd ever called were bill collectors. It was oh, either yeah. bill collectors or my friends from high school. And mom was like, don't answer that phone. Don't answer that phone. It's a bill collector. So it was kind of like that. the only way I ever knew to deal with anything financial was to avoid it.
2: Yes. I can't agree with you more. And I was uh, – we never really had money. Well, we did at first when I was young. And then around when I was like – god, I want to say like 12. Like mm-hmm. my my dad took a different job and I, I we we almost lost the house. And it was like coming home and like seeing my mom crying every day mm. and just – And just I remember like they were fighting nonstop and I used music as a way to escape. I would just put my headphones on my like Walkman and just Mm. get out of the house. And uh, it really I always had a problem with money where it was like because I had been broke over and over again out here in Los Angeles. And I just part of being in Los Angeles. I know. But it's like I treated money like and I always have. I've been like it's like, oh, I'll get more. And I'll just go out and spend whatever I want. And that's yeah. kind of the way I used to live. And then recently, maybe the last two years, when I really got money, I realized that I didn't want anything other than time. I just want my time to work on the things that I want to work on. So so like, yeah, I went out and bought new speakers, but that was the first thing I had bought for myself. Really, that was like kind of extravagant in yeah. forever. And and so now it's like I I've, I keep my money. I want to just be able to never have to take a job that don't I want, don't want to take.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, and that's that's interesting too because it's kind of like I was spending so much time hustling to get a job that that being able to kind of step back and relax and think about what you want to do um, is always valuable. Of course, if you are broke, it's harder to do. Yeah. But then you're then you spend then you're in the rat race. You're living yeah. check to check. That's how I grew up. Yeah. So it's like, I was, that was familiar to me. Everybody's living check to check, right? Yeah. And so, but then trying to figure out, like, okay, well, if I have this amount of money, then I need to give myself the time to relax, to re, regroup, and think about what else I want to do to continue sure. to make money in the way I want to make it. And that's very difficult because a job is a job is a job is a job, as we we're taught our entire life. But that's not true. Especially in entertainment. Every no. job is not equal. No, not at all. Because it's still you. These lines are so blurred. You know, what personal, professional reality and content. All that stuff is insanely blurred. So it's really hard to kind of stick to your guns through all of that stuff. Completely.
2: Um, the, the song also, though, has this, you know, it's me and my folks, you and your folks. Yeah. Like, what is your relationship with your parents like? Um,
1: it's all over the place. It's all over the map. Um, I mean, you know, we, you were talking about like, uh, when you were a kid and being broke and like, you know, coming home to your parents, you know, there's fighting and there's crying and stuff like that. So it's like, I was born in a small town in New Mexico. My mom was 19. My dad was probably 21. Um, I only met him a couple years ago, my biological father. So he was not in my life at all. And what I have gathered from meeting him and and talking to my mom about this stuff, which, by the way, a couple years ago was the first time my mom ever opened up to me about what happened, the circumstances around my birth. We just never talked about it. That was kind of the rule, if you will. The culture is a culture of silence in my house. Yeah. And so and my mom was an addict, you know, growing up as well. So it's kind of like which is probably a result of all of this rejection from, you know, this is a traumatic thing to happen to her at 19. For my father to be like, not mine, and then never see her ever again. And then my great-grandparents, who are the ones that raised me, her grandparents, disowned her because they were old-school Southern Baptist church people who were like, you had sex outside of wedlock. God is mad at you, so we don't even want to be a part of this. And then they raised me until I was like six, something like that. My mom got out of college, got me. We moved to Vegas and to be with my grandmother as well so it was me my mom and my grandma growing up basically mm-hmm. then about middle school-ish my stepfather came into the picture we never got along me and this guy um, he is a he's a hard case um, and he's still around my mom and him have two uh, daughters, my little sisters that are 13 and 14 years younger than me. Um, The oldest of the two has her own daughter now, my niece. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that –
0: and listen to something about the Beatles now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And so my mother and I went through a lot of healing, I guess you could say my sophomore year of college. And uh, I mean, but that's what I'm saying. Like, it was growing up in Vegas and it was probably about sixth, seventh grade that the addiction started to kind of really take a toll. And that, it's because I was getting older and I was going through, you know, puberty and I was 13 and kind of asserting my own independence and looking more like this man that, you know, broke that, her heart. Yeah. Oh, I could imagine. It's a lot of and, and that's what I'm talking about. This intimacy stuff, int- intimacy stuff is a lot of. Someone – my mom my mom loved me and was mad at me at the same time. So I thought those were the same thing. That's why I got into a lot of bad relationships when I got older. Of course. Because I'm like, oh, she's mad at me. She must care. You know, or, oh, she cares about me. She must be mad. It was kind of like those were the same thought to me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also assuming this other thing. So it's kind of like always feeling like I'm guilty about something. Um, so basically – Me and my mom, it took us a long time to kind of come back from all that stuff. You know, it was her getting sober and then me being in college because, you know, I I forgot this until the other day. (laughs) It's weird to say that I forgot this. I was homeless in high school ah, and and I forgot it because I had places to stay. Like I wasn't on the streets, but like I had a friend who let me stay in his uh, like an extra room That his family had mm-hmm. And then my girlfriend My senior Junior year Of, of uh, high school I lived with her And her mom Through my entire Senior year And then went from there To Boston And when I came back To Vegas I did not stay With my parents I stayed with my grandma Because she went out Moved out And got her own place I slept on her couch While working A couple of different jobs And then I just stayed In Boston as much as I could Without doing all that stuff So I was like Oh that technically Is is homeless Like I didn't ha- have A place to go My parents kicked me out like I crawled out of my bedroom after a physical fight cuz it was it was abuse and there was yelling and punching and kicking and screaming and like I crawled out of the window of this apartment complex to like call a, f- a friend of mine to tell her what had happened and then when I came back to my room to crawl back in the window I saw the light go off which means that they were there I tried the window they had locked the window so I had to go around to the front and then there was a trash bag of my clothes there so I just took that Slept at a friend's floor that was upstairs in the upstairs apartment and then took that whole trash bag (laughs) slash my life to school the next morning. I've had
2: had trash bag moves. Oh, dude. You're not living unless you have a trash bag move.
1: You haven't lived until— that's, Dude, I'm going to tell
2: you right now, that's why, like, if you look around my apartment, like, there's. I try to keep it as minimal as possible. Like, I don't have much stuff because I was so used to having to move. To move, dude. Like, at the drop of a hat.
1: This is a big thing for me as well. Like, I realized, like, a lot of my young life, I never put up anything on the walls. I used boxes as my tables, but then never unpacked them. I was just always ready to leave somewhere. Yeah. this idea of settling in, you know planting roots, making this my own space is still only a couple of years new. but a lot of that is just, uh, as my therapist would say, family of origin stuff. This kind, constant feeling like I don't belong, I could be I could go somewhere, you know they would kick me out. Um, I'm moving from place to place to place. We also I grew up in apartments. Yeah. so it's kind of like an apartment is by definition a temporary situation. At some point, you grow out of it. You need more space. Or, you know, you just never own the place. So there's only so much you can do to it. You can't change it. You can't paint it. You can't, like, do all these things. Anything you do, you put a painting on the wall. You're going to have to pay for that when you leave, you know. Oh, it came out of your deposit and all that stuff. So it's kind of like... Sorry, the question was what what my relationship is is with my folks. Yeah, I
2: mean, it's, I, but that's, but you, and you got that from your family. Is that what you're seeing from your mom in particular? Yeah,
1: it was very strained. I mean, it was, you know, and uh, my mom was, she was abandoned by her family. So it's kind of like that idea that there's someone you can depend on, you know, that is related to you was never part of her, her, her worldview. And so I got that same thing from her. If you will. Yeah. And so it was kind of like it didn't it wasn't until I was in college that we started to kind of heal and talk and think about uh, because I had an experience where I kind of realized um, what addiction was, if you will, as opposed to it being uh, because, you know, the culture talks about addiction like an addict is just something's wrong with them. You know, it's not, it's like, oh, you're genetically, you're bad, you know, you're predisposed to be bad, or somebody did, you know, but it's like, it's a reaction to some situation. I heard a doctor say it once that it's, addiction is a a temporary solution to a problem, you know, because he's like, the the whole medical industry is like, why are you an addict? Why are you an addict? Wrong question. The question is, why are you in pain? Yes. Addiction is a response to a deep pain. You can address the addiction, he said. But if you never address the cause, the root, the pain that this person is trying to numb, then the addiction will come back in different forms. It might not be this particular substance, you know. But yeah. But it might be something else. But as long as it doesn't get in the way of you going to work, no one cares. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so that,
2: that's funny you're talking about, about addiction because that kind of brings us into the second, the next track, which is super stupid. And, uh, this is this, once again, this is a rock and roll song. When that shit kicks in, I was driving and I went from fucking 90 <laughs> and this was like, I was just going 90, hundred miles an hour down the one Oh one. And I was just oh, like, dangerous. Fuck yeah. Listening to the lyrics. Uh, basically this is a song about buying heroin instead of Coke and dying. So, uh, and then given the chemical nature of George Clinton and the guys, I can tell if this was an anti-drug song or a just pro, like, take the, don't take the wrong drug by mistake song.
3: Mm. Uh,
2: you can hear the Hendrix elements. Yes, definitely. A hundred percent of it. Peter, play the guitar solo at minute one, second 34 until that shit kicks in. (laughs) What is a super stupid decision you've made in your life that is stuck with you and you're still feeling the consequences?
1: A super stupid, I mean, wow, that's, that's interesting. It's hard to pinpoint one thing. I actually have this deep need, if you will, to feel wrong. So I, I pour over all kinds of decisions I've made that are long gone. Yeah. I pour over things that I said or things that I did. I'm like, oh, that wasn't the best. I like, I, I dig them up to make myself feel bad out of nowhere. Yeah, I do that. Like if I'm just feeling really good one day, I'm like, ah, oh, but what about that time in eighth grade? <laughs> like I just, oh. I just have to go there to get it. I'm like ah, oh, that time in eighth grade where I said that dumb shit. Oh, what an asshole. I'm like, this is forever ago, but I can't let it go. Yeah, because I want almost, I want almost want, want to drag myself down with these, keep myself in place if you will yeah in quote unquote place make myself you know real or whatever so it's kind of like i think about a lot of uh, things that i did here's a here's an interesting um thing that i pour over again this Please. is a, this is a thing that's like a miscommunication thing I, I i think about this a lot this was in college i was probably i was a sophomore this girl was a freshman we lived on the same floor in this dorm and so there was a A chemistry there There was a thing there We hung out a lot And then One day I literally I just literally asked her If I could kiss her And she was like yes And we Suddenly we're making out Suddenly when she comes over We're no longer hanging out We're making out Right And then I decided Oh maybe I'll try to take it To the next level So we're on the bed We're kissing You know Clothes are coming off I'm more undressed Than she is Right So I Am fully naked She is not yet But I have established the idea of full nakedness, (laughs) full nakedness, as we say in the south. But
2: as naked, But she's she's fully clothed. Naked?
1: She's not fully clothed. Okay, at least. But she's wearing more clothes than I am. Yeah. And we're making out, and then she goes, "You know what? I I, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be doing this." And I go, "Oh, okay." I put my underwear back on, and what I said was, "And this is what I pour over a lot." What is it? I said, "I should have known." There's a bunch of different ways to take that statement, right? Now, what I meant was I should have been more aware. Yes, yes, okay. I should have been more aware of, of the fact that you were maybe feeling uncomfortable and maybe not taking it to the point of me being buck naked. Or, or it could be, I should have known. And that's what I pore over is maybe she thought that's what I meant is I did that like should have known blue balls yeah, kind fuck of it. shit. You're that kind of girl. Because it got weird after that. It got very weird after that. Now, it could get weird after that just because we went to this this uh, this wall and we didn't cross it, you know? Yeah. And I didn't – I wasn't offended by that. I was just kind of like, oh, I should have known. I should have been – you know, I was thinking I should have been listening more is what I was thinking in my head. Yeah. But I said I should have known, and maybe she took it as I am – You know, putting her down like I'm I'm blaming her for me not being able to get my my rocks off. Yeah. So it got a little weird after that. And like there was a distance thing and then there was a point where we started not talking. And then I kind of I don't even know if it was a month after this. Maybe I essentially confessed my feelings to her because I never said like, I like you a lot. Yeah. It's something as simple as that. So I decided to say that and I said, I still have feelings for you. And, you know, do you feel the same? And she's like, I don't. And so we just, and that was it. And I was like, she's like, I would like you to leave me alone. And I stopped talking to her. I just left her alone. And I pour over this oh, man. moment. The me saying I should have known. I, I come back to this moment so often. Yeah, Because I'm like, man, she thinks I I, I that, that. I insulted her, you know, like that. But that's not what I meant. But that's like you. You almost wish that
2: you could have said I I should have known. I'll put my clothes back on. I'm so sorry. That's you should have said I'm sorry, dude.
1: But it was awkward and I felt uncomfortable. Yes, of course. But also you're young and it's like
2: that shit happened. This is the thing I've been doing my whole life, which is just living in the past and just and just sitting in it and wishing I would have done stuff differently. But you didn't. Yes. And so you just have to accept it and just go. Cool, that's the past. I've learned from that now.
1: But this is the heart of what anxiety
2: and depression are. Exactly. Exactly, dude. All right, let's let's jump to the next song, Back in Our Minds. Uh. This is there's that weird noise. Peter, play that. It's like a boo again because
1: George Clinton produced this whole album, right? Yes, yes, he did. And it's just like what a mind like all the different sounds, all the different elements, how it all kind of it, it mixes together. It's yes. like, how did he know that this was going to work? This well, the it's funny magic.
2: thing, the funny thing about back in our minds, uh, it just it's. I, I, I think that instrument was him just hitting like a bowl filled with water, like I just. Oh, boop, doop, doop, nice. I have no idea, uh, but this song, literally, it's like I was just having so much fun listening to this because it just sounded like a bunch of people together all fucked up. Just just singing their asses off. Like, we don't fight no more. We done closed that door. This time for sure we can't stand no more. Fussing and a-cussing each other. When we're souls to your brother. Living in the world we all live in. It just sounds like... Like, just friends having the best time fucked up. What is the most altered you've ever been?
1: most altered... What do you mean by... Divine? Well, I altered. was going to
2: say, well, I, I, that, was, that was definitely one of David's questions, because usually I would just be like, what's the most fucked up you <laughs> ever been? <laughs> well, fucked up and altered
1: are very different. Well, um, you take it however you want to take it. This is your this is your shit, so... Because fucked up, um, to me, it kind of denotes a, a sloppiness, if you will. Like, it was not your intention. I mean, people, people do have that intention. I, you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to get fucked up this weekend. So people do have that intention to go buck wild, to go past their limits, right? But altered is a different thing. Altered could be fucked up. But it could also be going to the jungle and drinking mystic teas. And that's the most altered that I have ever been. Tell, so, so, what, so you went to the jungle? Went to the jungle. What jungle? Peru?
2: Mexico. Mexico, okay. Yeah. Please tell me more. because oh, I'm, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm like, done. It's illegal. No, I'm, a- <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Good, so, we got um, it. We got it on tape. Get him. I, I, you know, I've, I've taken a couple of different psychedelic drugs like mushrooms or ayahuasca. Um, you know, and that's the other thing, funkadelic, right? So it's kind of like standing on the shoulders of Hendrix, where it's like Hendrix was a R&B dude, a blues dude, who went to England and was there when the psychedelic. Music start, yeah, started, and then he confused what he did with that, and became his own unique thing. And then he set forward George Clinton being able to happen, Bootsy Collins being able to happen, you know, um, uh, Fishbone being able to happen, stuff like that. Living Color, you know, all these different bands that are black people that are doing rock music, yeah. Because it was like, no, you guys do R and B. It's like we could do whatever the hell we want, but it's like again, genre stuff. So it's kind of like it is a movement that is based on, I think, taking these drugs and kind of breaking your mind open, stepping into, if you will, a plane (laughs) yeah, Uh, that is outside of everyday worldly experience and then incorporating that into how you communicate with the world, right? So that's why I think that Funkadelic is like, oh, it's psychedelic, but it's funk. So it's the fusion of psychedelica and funk put together, and that's why it has these trippy themes, trippy sounds. It's kind of like, well, let's do that our way and make it its own unique thing, which I think they achieve, right? Oh, 100%. So my – yeah, I mean, I went to the – drank ayahuasca with Shaman and saw the most intense (laughs) – I want to do that so bad, like it's so bad, and I need to go back, man. And you know, and I used to, I used to kind of shame myself, I guess you could say, for being so new age, something like that. But it's kind of like all this is tribal, indigenous people stuff. They've been doing it for like thousands of years. It's been around for thousands of years. Black people were doing this in Africa. There's these stuff. This stuff is in Africa. This stuff is in South America. So this stuff was here in North America before we, of course, we killed all those people. Yeah,
2: unfortunately,
1: you know. So it's kind of like. I'm just going back to ancient stuff to see what it, what it has to offer because if it's been around for thousands of years and people have been using it as a healing medicine, if you will, then maybe there's something to it. Of course it's scary, but you know you won't necessarily lose your mind, although somebody used to say that. A lot of people – because a lot of people, when I first went to do it, I was my first time was with a group of people. It was a lot of their first time. That was a common theme. I don't want to lose my mind. I don't want to lose my mind. And one of the people that was running it was like, you should be so lucky to lose your mind. My goodness, to stop thinking and overanalyzing every single thing that you do, to only live only in your intellect and your ego and not have a connection to your body and the ground and the earth around you, that sounds fantastic, losing your mind. And I was like, whoa, bro. <laughs> I didn't say bro, but I thought it, <laughs> which is almost the same. If yeah, Catholic. Yeah, you're like, Ugh. Same as saying it. Um, no, keep going, please. So, yeah, I mean, like, the whole thing with ayahuasca is that you're supposed to have a, a prayer, if you will, or an intention that you, a question you ask the spirit. And so it's kind of like my first one was, Show me who I am. That was the first thing I asked. Because as we've talked about labels, We've talked about this industry. We've talked about our childhood. So it's kind of like I get very confused because it has been a major theme in my life. I'm being told that I am not what I am the entire time. I'm being told that I'm not black. I'm being told that I'm not a man. I'm being told that, you know, all these different things that I've been confused so long as who I am. And I chose a profession where I get to change forms, if you will. I've chosen a profession where I get to shape-shift and mythologize myself. I mean, that's what I think stand-up is, is that you are the hero of your mythological story. Yes, And so you tell the story of your triumphs and your failures on the journey towards, what, enlightenment, fulfillment, whatever, everything that everyone is hoping for. I think that's what any stand-up is doing when they get on stage, is they are mythologizing themselves, and the, the the danger is, I remember who was it, Lewis Black? I think he said a long time ago that like, you play a character on stage. The character is parts of your personality. It's like if you think of your personality as slices of a pie, your stand-up comedy character is three or four of those slices, fully exaggerated, right? But the thing is, we as comedians get so used to having to filter all experiences through that lens that it becomes the only way we can see things. We create a character that is us, but isn't us. And then we turn ourselves slowly into the character that's on stage.
3: Hmm. And
1: we forget what is actually us and what is the myth that we are reporting. And I do that. So show me who I am was the first thing I wanted to know. And I, and I drank the tea and it takes a long time. Ayahuasca is DMT. Yeah, it's combined with something else that makes it last four hours. Because I think, I've heard, I've never smoked DMT or whatever. People say, oh, it's like 15 minutes, 20 minutes long. This is like a four to eight hour long experience where you're in this plane. And it's kind of, I mean, it's incredible and it's scary. It's terrific and terrifying, you know. So it's like I got to see and get information about stuff that I never even considered would be useful to me or that i even thought about myself
2: did you did you get what you wanted from that experience like did you come out do you feel like you've grown because of that and absolutely like, yeah. absolutely
1: i mean and that's the thing though because you you it's a retreat you leave this world los angeles i go to the jungle where it's quiet and dark at night and they're like hey every time you wake up make sure to shake out your shoes and clothes there's tarantulas And then I'm there in this quiet, silent place, have this insane spiritual experience, and then I get on a plane and come back to Los Angeles, and then that's when the world gets back on you again. So it's easy to feel that. The closeness, if you will, and that fullness that you can feel there. And then you come back and then everything, everyone starts, everyone that you talk to has a hammer and they hit you over the head with it. And then at some point you're like, oh, Jesus, I've been hit over the head with a hammer for three years. I can't even remember what it feels like to feel whole or feel peace. Sure. And my problem is that, um, is integration, I guess you could say. I learn a lot of this stuff and I go, oh, I see, but how to integrate that into one's life. And to put it forward as a practice or to apply it, that's where the difficulty is. You can get all kinds of answers. But that doesn't mean that it's going to change how you act in the everyday situation unless you work at it.
2: Yes, completely.
1: Now, I want to I talk
2: about, keep continuing what we're talking about. That brings us into our next song. Our last song. Because Wars of Armageddon, to me, just reminds me of a bad trip. Mm. It, I mean, I've had a bad trip. Which I gotta talk because it's like first before I say just a bad trip. I mean it's it's just random noises. It had a very like bitches brew element to yes, it. Yes, yes. So it's just it's just it's bitches avant- brew. And, yeah, yeah. This it's just is perfect. Avant-garde yeah. jazz. I dude. At one point, I heard a fucking cow mooing. I was like, all right, this. But this reminds me of um, uh, of this bad trip when I was uh, fifteen years old. I went to uh, I'd already taken LSD a few times and my friend Tassos and, uh, and Ben and Mark Thomas and the guys I was in a band with were like, we're going to all finally take more acid than just one hit. Let's take three tabs of acid oh. on this Friday night. And I was like, cool, man. I was like, I can handle it. And we go into Tassos's backyard and he sets up a tent, puts a couch in there, gets incense, gets candles, and we all start tripping. And at first it was fine. Everything was fine. Of course. Everything's is it great. Is always how it goes? It's always great. The quiet before the We're storm. Just, yeah, dude. And it's just like, I remember talking to a buddy, and I was like, ah, oh, this is so great, and going on a jungle gym. And then the acid starts really, really starting to course through my body. And I go into the tent, and Tassos is sitting on the couch, and he's like philosophizing, like, "Then the world is round, and that means that our hearts are round, and, blah, and whatever the fuck he's saying. <laughs> yeah, sure. And the next thing I know, I start looking around the tent, And I start seeing swastikas everywhere. Just so, so I'm just like looking around like, does anybody else see the swastikas? Is this a Nazi tent or whatever I say? And everybody's like, nah, man, I think you're just, the ass is just a little strong. And then I just like, well, I got to get out of here. And so I get up to walk out and then everybody, because I'm so like, uh, not, I guess, scared, but just agitated. People are like, well, we got to calm down, Josh. And they all start following me. And then I just... I'm like, you just get the fuck away from me! Everybody, get away! And then I take off running, mm. two miles from Tasso's house to my parents' house at full speed. Baron. Whoa! Full speed, two miles. So now my heart is racing, dude. What I saw in in that that run. Is what I base is this song, dude? It's literally just like I just the random noises. At one point, I thought I was running through the desert. As I looked out of my hand, my flesh was peeling off. I remember I ran through this field and I saw this giant, like, um, what do you call it? Like, not a like a grasshopper or what's the other one? The fucking uh, praying mantis. Oh, I mean, just just the everything, dude. I start peeling off clothes. I get now this is where it gets a little interesting. I get to my parents'
1: house.
2: <laughs> I get to my parents' house and I start beating on the door. And my mom comes downstairs in her nightgown, opens up the door, and I just, like, mush her face, start running through the house now. So now I'm, I'm, I'm in front of my family. Mm. Uh, I start running through the house. My dad wakes up. My sister wakes up. I go upstairs and I'm just like you know I see my cat and I'm like who sent you and I throw the cat <laughs> and then dude like this is the part I always remember this is how powerful the mind is I'm fucking sitting on the floor like doing like a curly like spin mm-hmm. and my mom's crying and, and I'm looking around and as I look at everybody they start aging backwards like start aging becoming younger the apartment starts going another apartment the house starts going like all the things the TV used to be there then it's the older TV they had before this one and all they, they it just everything's changing They're Clothes are changing, and I literally regress all the way back to my the moment of my birth, and then I reenact my own childbirth in front of my family. I'm just like ah, ah. and then I remember I always like throw my hands up in the air as I reach to the sky, and I go like it's a
0: baby,
2: <laughs> and, and like like the, oh my god, and then I finally pass out, and I, I wake up the next morning, and I'm in my bedroom. And my, my room is trash, man. And my mom is like petting my head. She's like, "Are you he's crying. She's like, are you? She's like, what happened? And I was like, I think uh, somebody drugged me last night. And she's like, well, come downstairs. We're all having breakfast. And then I would go downstairs and we never spoke of it again. Whoa. Never. Interesting. Never talked about it. My dad just goes, you're grounded. And that's it. <laughs> and that was it. And dude. It's funny that you say that because I used to look at it like it was this horrible experience in mm-hmm, my life that mm-hmm. changed the way that I am, right? And and I never have been the same since then because I saw shit how powerful the mind was. I was so young too; I was fifteen years old because it was so scary. Just like when I yeah. listened to this song, yeah, like those. I had my headphones on. I was like, I'm going to fully like take this song in. I put my headphones on. I close my eyes and I listen. and it just, it just like. It scared me. It it, it, it it just... I felt anxious.
1: Just... It was so much. It's what you said to me earlier. What's that? Well, when we were talking about, like, going into intense or dark subjects in stand-up, you have to go into it. Yeah. You yeah, know, you have to go into it. You have to go into it.
2: To come out. I
1: just wish... I, it's one of those things. I just wish I had somebody to say that to me. Well... You were 15, you were unsupervised, right? Yeah. I mean, the ayahuasca experience is a very – it can be very uh, – well, the ones that I've had, I think, when it's safest, it's very structured. You've got people there who have done this, who have worked with this, know how to handle all kinds of different problems, right, to guide you, to assist you if you need it. Yeah. But a lot of the times – I mean, that was a big thing. That was a big theme when I first went to do it. Like People like, feel nauseous. They feel painful. They, they feel scared. And they, the shaman were always like, go to it. You're, fe- you're feeling it because you're supposed to. It's demanding attention. It wants you – it's begging for you to come to it. And I remember thinking that or, or just making sure to do that when I would say, like, oh, I feel like really nauseous. And then I would decide to go like, okay, well, what does this nausea mean? I would go to it. And every single time I would learn an insane piece of information – you feel like, oh, my stomach is in knots. Well, maybe it's because there's some block in your freaking stomach. There's something that's being held there that it's finally being like, come to me. It's time for you to meet me or whatever, right? And you go to it and you see what the hell it is maybe and then it's gone. Then it's gone. All right, you want to do some facts? Give me some facts.
2: There's a whole lot of facts getting down, getting down. There's a whole lot of facts getting down. Uh, Okay. The cover photo of the lady with the afro buried in the dirt screaming was shot yes. by famed photographer Joel Brodsky, who also shot the sole genre-defining Ohio Players uh. and Isaac Hayes album covers as well as oh. iconic debut covers for The Doors, MC5, The Stooges, and Kiss. Uh, so you can see the maggot brain image reflected in many other artist covers, including Redman's Dare... Is a dark side. What does the cover mean to you?
1: Well, I thought if you would have brought it, if I would have brought it, because it's also the back cover, that's that's to me, that's a big story. And I think that the front cover and the back cover are sort of a reflection of the first and the last track as well. The first, the front cover, it's a woman, big afro, her head is in the dirt, it almost looks like she's just ahead, yeah, and she's. Laughing or smiling? Screaming. Screaming. It's hard to tell what she's doing. But I think she's Mother Earth and she's giving birth. So this front cover is her having the experience of giving birth. Like, ah, she's in the middle of giving birth. And it's like all of these feelings are happening. It's like she's hysterical. There's laughter, there's tears, there's crying. And then the album is the experience of the birth. Sure. And then in the back of the album, it's basically the same picture as the front, except now it's just a skull that's in the dirt.
2: God, I wish you would have brought the fucking (laughs) record. But this is a headshot. This is a very powerful image. Yes. Now, on the inside jacket, there is a huge maggot framing the top of the liner notes. Beneath the maggot is an excerpt of Process Number 5 on Fear from the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And there's a whole passage. Uh, but I'm just going to try to see if I can uh, get this down to just the bare minimum because I got more. Fear is at the root of man's destruction of himself. Mm. Uh, for those that don't know, the Process Church of the Final Judgment got famous in the 1960s for defying both Jesus and the devil and tangentially related to both Elron Hubbard and Charles Manson. Damn. Tell me about a time when fear got in your way.
1: Oh, man. I mean, fear gets in my way all the damn time, you know. I am a fearful person.
3: Yeah. So
1: it's kind of like, eh, you know, and I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot lately too, just kind of like how long I have just been afraid for my entire life. And just, I'm afraid, I mean, and, you know, and like being a kid, like, I'm a black kid walking the streets of Las Vegas. That's scary. I'm, And then at home I didn't feel safe because there's like all sorts of dumb shit happening there, you know, with our family dynamic. So yeah. it's kind of like... At no point did I ever feel safe, so fear is my like my my baseline. Yeah, that's like feeling
2: you. That's why you you run from stuff because it's just like you're like I oh, know I'd just rather be alone
1: and afraid. Basically, yeah.
3: yeah.
1: Um, but like when it comes to like, cause even like when I've been robbed, suddenly the fear is gone. It's like a strange. I'm just thinking about the first time I was ever held up at gunpoint, where it was kind of like. I had thought about this happening so long. It's so often because I don't know how many kids I knew that had been robbed at gunpoint or had robbed someone at gunpoint. Yeah, and then finally it happened, and it was like I was like, "Oh, I've been rehearsing for this my entire life." But it was almost <laughs> like I just knew what to do. Yeah, and it was like this crazy calm washed over me, where it's like, "I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid." I saw we were at this pool hall in Vegas, and it was like. It was, it was notorious for the company that, that went to play pool there. All sorts of gangbangers and stuff. And I was with this group of high school kids, and I was like, we shouldn't go to this place in the first place. They're like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so we went, and then, of course, it was packed. There was nowhere for us to be, so then we immediately turned around and left. And we left at the exact same moment as these couple, these three dudes. And I just kind of was like, ah, oh, these dudes are going to rob it's us. It's always three dudes. It's always three. It's always three. Two, not so much. One, not so much. Four is too many. Three <laughs> is enough to get reinforced, you know, and be yeah. like, oh, I'm going to rob them. And two people <laughs> like, yeah, do it, yeah. man. So it's <laughs> like, we, they left at the same time as us. I didn't pay them pay attention to them at, at first until I saw them kind of looking at us. And I was like, these dudes are going to rob us. And then, of course, we get, to, we get to our car. Our car is right next to their car. Oh, of course. And then... We're and then someone's like, "All right, let's just figure out where we're gonna go." And I'm like, "Are you serious? You want to stand in the middle of a parking lot right now and and talk? We should get in the damn car and leave." Yeah. And then one of the dudes is like, "Excuse me," and everyone turns around and he's got a gun. He's like, "Give me all your money," and it's like, oh. and then my hands went up and I was like, I was annoyed. I was more annoyed than I was scared at this time. Yeah. And I'm like, "All right," because generally, people who rob you, well, it's not. I'm just, I want to make generalizations, but he didn't seem like he was going to kill anybody. He just seemed like he wanted our money. It was it was like he was showing off for his friends. And I was like, all right, well, let me just – if I don't do anything, if I don't move, if I don't try to make a run, if I'm just calm, I'll be fine. It'll be fine. But everyone was in shock. You know, yeah. give me your money. Everyone's like, what? And he's like, you think this is a joke? And then he fired the gun at the parking lot. And, of course, it ricocheted. The bullet ricocheted off into my friend's leg. Oh, fuck. It didn't go through, though. It was a graze. But scary to her, you know, obviously. It was oh, scary to yeah. all of us. We're all like, oh, shit. Literally none of us had any money on us. And this one kid gave him five bucks. And then he left. Him and his friends, like, pu- pulled away. And I remember thinking, like, that bullet is more than $5. <laughs> that dude just lost money from robbing us.
3: Oh, that's hilarious. I didn't say
1: that, but I just remember being like, that's a $5 <laughs> bullet was probably six fifty. Wholesale, he just lost money on this robbery.
2: (laughs) That's so fucking funny. Oh my God. All right. When considering the power of Funkadelic, Mm -hmm. had as a hard rocking band, I can't help but feel it's a bit of a racially motivated omission and that they're rarely listed amongst their three other proto punk Detroit contemporaries Mm. the MC5, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, and Ted Nugent's. Amboy Dukes. Hmm. Not only are they bridged between Motown, but Funkadelic actually shared management with all three of them. Uh.
0: Hey, this is Dewey Halpas host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man. To Fat Mike from NoFX and Ian McKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, peer pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.
2: Uh, what are some strengths to Baron Vaughn, past or present, that get overlooked mainly because of prejudice? Whew.
1: My propensity for silliness. I'm a, really? very, I'm a, silly, I'm a I'm very, very silly and i like to be silly. so it's kind of like that's why i have a hard time recon- reconciling sometimes my darkness with my silliness. i think that's also sometimes why audiences get weirded out because i'm so silly and i smile a lot and i do voices and i make puns and i do side of, i do sound effects. but then i will talk about not having a dad. you know, then i yeah. will then i will try then i will be like, "oh, you know, i'll try to like do some argument about race that and i try to talk about race in a way that i've never heard. Because, you know, you're talking about people like Chris Rock and, and Chappelle before. It's like so much has been said about race that's so good already that it's like, well, if I'm going to talk about it, I don't want to go over territory that people have already covered. They've already done it really well. Yeah. Then I'm just doing an impersonation of someone that did something better than me instead of doing it my own way. So I try to like get philosophical. I try to get um, you know, deep, if you will. But... Because I'm silly, I think people go like, "Wait a minute, what's going on here? You were really silly. Now you're talking about Something aliens, serious, yeah, <laughs> or, it is, or aliens, yeah." Um, so it's kind of like I feel like my my silliness, if you will, my goop, my inner goofiness, my absurdism, which goofiness, by the way, is another thing I like about this album. There's there's, it's there's very goofy. There's such, there's a humor. There's a dark humor. To a lot of this, but there's a lot of goofiness and silliness to even just the wordplay, the way that he writes. I once had a life or rather life had me is a silly statement. Yeah. He does that a lot, too. He kind of reverses statements.
2: You and your folks love me and my, my folks, folks like like me. You and your folks love me and my folks. It's just... And it's just kinda, kind of... He does this kind of stuff. He, yeah, he's... Dude, that's the funny thing about George Clinton is that he, he is this silly individual. Dude, if we... So the first record we broke down, he was on. I did Outkast Equemini. Oh, And yeah. he's on Synthesizer talking about wanting to I think it's about like I think Byron said it it's it's if you listen closely you can hear George Clinton calling a prostitute and asking her to do things he's like he's like you know motivated ejaculation Uh, he's just saying all this weird shit so there's definitely a silliness too I mean red he's got like 19 colors in his hair yes I mean I think he's the epitome of a silly you know rock star I think that's kind of why they can't well, well he's, he's he's
1: he's, and it's it's similar with some of the like Bootsy as well. They're, Very, they're yeah. icons, but again, they've turned themselves into these characters that I go, well, how much of that is what they would be like in an everyday situation? It's hard to know, but I also don't care in a sort of a weird way. Yeah. Uh, according to
2: writer Adam Brent H- Hooftang, yeah, in course. the wake of the sudden and tragic passing of Jimi Hendrix at age 27 in September 1970, there was a there was naturally a desire on the part of some to crown the next Hendrix. Mm. Dwayne Allman, Ernie Isley, Robin Trower and Johnny Winter were among the skilled players deemed worthy but none produced the kind of searing, emotional, fuzz-punched performance that Funkadelic's Eddie Hazel accomplished on Maggot Brain. Were you ever pitched as being the next blank?
1: (sighs) No, not necessarily because... Well, okay, when New Negroes was announced that Comedy Central was doing our show, there were a couple write-ups that were like, Comedy Central found its next key and peel. And I was like, what? Not at all. What? We're nothing like. You're Key not and a sketch Peel. show. Are you a sketch we're show? We're not a sketch show. No. We're also like, not like tonally, stylistically, nothing like Key and Peele. Key and Peel are their own thing, so it's kind of like we're our own thing and we're doing a very different thing, you know. Yeah. But it's just there's nothing else to compare us to, so it annoyed the crap out of me, yeah. <laughs> annoyed the crap out of me. Where I'm like, well, I think people who liked Key and Peele, like I loved Key and Peele, will like our show. But don't watch us expecting us to be like a key in sure. you know? Yeah. Um, then, because the thing is that, like, no one, it's, it's hard to get to get in that category as a, as a black comic, I guess you could say. There's always been this weird thing, you know, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it's like every single decade since the 50s, there has been one major black comic that literally everyone has to live up to and everyone gets compared to. So it was Cosby, then it was Pryor, then it was Eddie Murphy, then it was Rock, then it was Chappelle, and Chappelle gave up the throne. So Chappelle like, stepped away from the peak of his fame when everyone was getting p- compared to him. It's just like that scene in Hollywood Shuffle where everyone's going out for that audition and it's Murphy-esque. Murphy-esque. i looking for an Eddie Murphy type. Eddie Murphy type. So it's like... I have been compared to one person. So it's no, I, no one's ever said, I'm the next something. It's like, I've been going out for things where it's like Chappelle type, Chappelle type, Chappelle type. Because when I was in New York, uh, Chappelle show was on. So yeah. it was like, everybody wanted the next Chappelle, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, after Chappelle, I guess it was Cat Williams and then kind of Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart now. And now it's kind of like, you know, you got, I guess, Gerard and Donald Glover. The thing is that there's more people now that people are, ki- that are kind of huge, that people can be like, oh, we want a Gerard type or a Hannibal type or a Donald Glover type. It used to just be one comic that everyone had to be a Chappelle or a Chris Rock type. Yeah. And um, so, no, I've never been – no one's ever said I'm the next something. Uh, I don't think people even know that I'm here, (laughs) that I'm the first me. (laughs) Sly Stone and George Clinton were two great musicians who
2: sometimes made amazing music together, but more often just egged each other on to greater levels of drug consumption. Clinton remembers a note a dope-seeking stone slipped under his door at a hotel in handwriting flawless enough for a wedding invitation. Knock, knock, put a rock in a sock, and sock it to me, doc. Signed, co-junkie for the funk. Uh, who is your creative partner, or someone who you vibe instantly with, and gets the direction you're trying to go in?
3: Whoo,
1: interesting. I mean, right now it's Open Mike Eagle, who is my co-host. You know of of New Negroes. He has a very different. Background than I do um, but also there's so many similarities of our personalities and so it's kind of been interesting to work with him and to kind of see the way that he looks at things especially because he's had to navigate the music world yeah uh as a as a rapper as a hip hop artist that doesn't easily fit into a category as well so he's had to do that in a very different way and I've learned a lot from him um and yeah I'm trying to think of who else like one of my f- closest friends um who has always been a fan of mine, which is uh, interesting. It's Phoebe Robinson. She's half of Two Dope Queens. Yes. Yeah, I know her. Um, And she has always kind of just, just gotten me, I guess you could say. And um, it is super encouraging. We have a, you know, we're friends obviously, but it's kind of like she encourages me. I encourage her. It's been this sort of back and forth that's lasted for, you know, a decade. Um, creative partner. I'm trying to think of like people who were early creative partners too. There was a dude um, his name's Elon James White. He is a uh, a podcaster and a, a stand-up comic, I think. I don't know if he is doesn't doing stand-up anymore who lives up in the San Francisco Bay Area um, that we started a show many 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 years ago back in New York and Brooklyn that is sort of like the seeds for what New Negroes is because we did a thing that was like it New Negroes is like another version, another iteration of like black people coming together to do something. It, it happens all the time in all these different ways. This yeah. is my version of it. Elon and I tried to create a scene and tried to create a thing. It was called the Brooklyn Comedy Company. And we did a thing called the Black Comedy Project. We had a show called Four Shades, uh, which was him, myself, Michelle Buteau, and uh, Eric Andre or Jordan Carlos. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would do different variations. And so like he was an early collaborative partner I guess like the first person that I did a lot of stuff with and we talked a lot about comedy and kind of the things we wanted to do in comedy and the kind of the shows we wanted to create and stuff like that. So that's 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 another person I guess you could say.
2: You everybody you mentioned is fucking I know them and I'm just like that's they're fucking great people. Like I love Michelle to death. I think Eric is one of the funniest people in the world. And I think it's like if you surround yourself around people that like you never want—I always said it. It's like you never want to be the funniest person in your group. You uh-huh. always want it to be somebody that makes you work harder. That was Angelo for me. Mm-hmm. Angelo Bower is still to this day. Like I started with him and Gerard Carmichael, and it was like by starting with them and knowing that they were so funny, I had to work so hard just to even be in the same like breath. And I never was. Like you know what I mean? It's definitely something that I had to continuously uh, work at, but just to see, be around those two guys, like for the first three years of my career. I mean, it was like the, I mean, it just, it just made me work so much harder. So on an early parliament tour basis, Billy base, Nelson was navigating and thought he had found a shortcut to Ohio. Clinton recalls. We ran a roadblock, went about a mile along the road and (laughs) came into a small town where we saw all these fucking creatures walking around, Zombies or mummies, hands up in the air, and dead look on their faces. We were scared out of our fucking minds. When they saw the Klieg lights, they realized it was not an actual town of the undead, but a movie set. They had stumbled onto the filming of George Romero's classic horror movie, Night of the Living Dead. What? Yeah, man. This is from his book. What's an environment you've entered where you've been absolutely terrified only to have found out that you misread the
1: situation? Oof. That's an interesting one. Um, this is a stand-up comedy gig thing. Hit me. Higher Ground, which is a, a, a venue in Burlington, Vermont.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I've only performed there once. It was one of my favorite shows I've ever done. And I thought it was going to be a shit show. There was a emo band in the big room next door. A group of emo bands, emo screamo as someone said. <laughs> and so the crowd in there was nothing but 14, 15, 16 year olds and they're just like
3: "Until my dying day!"
1: Exactly. So all of the parents of those teenagers were like, "Well, I'm not going to drive home, so I guess I'll just go to this comedy show." And I was like, "What?" Someone says like, "Yeah, it's all the parents of all the teenagers next door." I'm yeah. like, "That's horrible." <laughs> They're going to hate me. This is a horrible situation. And it was one of my best gigs I've ever had. They just got everything? and They just... were just into the show. Yeah, they yeah. were into every comic. They were an incredible audience. And I was like, well, I totally misread this situation. Fuck yeah, dude.
2: Uh, when Clinton was growing up in Newark, New Jersey in the 50s, one of his formative influences was Mambo. Mambo was like our disco, he remembers. He studied how people dressed up for a night of Mambo and how sufficiently good dancers could cross gang lines. One of his unfulfilled mis- musical ambitions to cut a version of Tito Puente's Coco Secco. What is something very foreign to you that has become so attractive to you that you've incorpor- incorporated it into your art and daily life?
1: Hmm. That's interesting, you know, maybe I, I, I feel like this is like a, almost like a hacky thing that, that happens to like some dudes when we get to a certain age, when we're, we're getting near 40, yeah. uh, becoming more and more fascinated with history. I feel like one of the things that the United States does is mythologize. We're constantly trying to prove to ourselves why what we're doing is the best possible way to do it we're constantly trying to prove to uh, to prove to ourselves that this country is perfect and that everything is equal and fair and all these things everything works and everything is in place we're constantly trying to prove that to ourselves because if it would if it if it, what's happening is perfect and if it wasn't it would be something that's different but yeah. when you look at history and when you see like the people that made the moves and wrote the laws and had the influence it's random And so I kind of look at that in a new way, especially when I'm thinking about the history of black people in this country, because it's not taught to us. You know, it's not, we get it a month, you know, of the year and a sanitized friendly version that can go into a middle school textbook. And you kind of miss out on who a lot of these leaders were, who a lot of um, people were that had all these insane ideas that um, are influential. Or just you only know a version of them that is sanitized. Like Martin Luther King Jr. We get a very sanitized version of who he was. He was a very complex dude, obviously. But he also had a lot of counter-culture ideas. You know, people look at Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X is like two sides of a coin. Where it's like Malcolm is militant and Martin is peaceful. But when you look at the ends of their life, they flipped. Malcolm started to become a lot more peaceful because he went to Mecca, went on a pilgrimage, and you know met white people who are uh, Muslim. And was like, oh, this is a lot different than what I was thinking before. Yeah. And saw that this was a uniquely American problem. But I think he, in some sort of ways, seems to have come to some sort of inter peace in a different way, even though his life was under threat. But he kind of became a little bit more calm, if that, sounds, if that makes any sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And then Martin Luther King Jr. was the opposite. It was the, it was the culture of, you know, um, uh, I guess passiveness, you know, of nonviolence. And then when he went to Chicago and it was all about redlining and then he gave that speech about Vietnam, he was becoming more militant. In a lot of different ways. And that's kind of where he was toward the end of his life. And we still don't know about the end of his life because we know about the highlights, you know, all the successes. Yeah. But it says a lot to who Martin is and more to who this country is or what he had to face before he was assassinated. When it came to redlining in Chicago, when it came to taking a stance on Vietnam and stuff like that. So it's kind of like seeing a lot of these historical figures as full people. Instead of someone who knew exactly what they wanted and said exactly what they were always going to say, there was confusion. There's, there's, there's terror. There's questioning. All of these great people that we learn about are people. And it's just interesting to me to see how they all kind of triumph over themselves. And I kind of, I guess I try to think about that for myself in terms of what I, all my fear and all my nervousness to get deep and to yeah. get dark on stage and uh so i'm trying to and also like just admitting i don't know things no i get it's yeah. like the most powerful thing oh yeah <laughs> just 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 like once i started
2: realizing i don't know anything life got a lot better and i had't no control <laughs> once i gave up all my control and just trying to fucking stay on top of, of life and being like no i can get all this i can get it but i just have to like let it go and then everything will come to you
1: so maybe b- admitting my ignorance is something that was foreign to me yeah. that I am incorporating into my life. When Bill Clinton was elected,
2: George Clinton enjoyed the coincidence of having a president with the same last name. When Chelsea Clinton came backstage with, uh, with secret service agents, she joked with the funk master about having a food fight. He dissuaded her not wanting to get shot down by an overeager Fed. While posing for a photo with Chelsea, George realized at the last moment that he should probably conceal the crack pipe he was holding. <laughs> so he just made a fist around it. He goes, it was hot as a motherfucker, burning my hand up, but it worked. The picture without a crack pipe in sight it was in People magazine. Wow. If you had to smoke crack, who would you do it with?
1: If I had to smoke crack, who would I do it with? Uh, Pryor at his prime. Uh, Marion
2: Barry. Uh, well, no, it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be the... the well, all right. Well, no, we could take it to actual crack smokers.
1: Um, oh, it could be with anybody if I had to smoke crack. Margaret Thatcher. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good old Thatchy. Uh, Thatch Adams, I, I like to call her. Thatch, <laughs> Thatch Adams. Thatch Adams. Um, Tim Burton.
2: It's such a weird drug to ask somebody to do. It's like usually it's like if you smoke pot with somebody, who would you do? Because you smoke pot and then you talk and you philosophize and you guys are both calm, you know, like mushrooms or LSD. It's like, all right, there could be somebody that's really spiritual or something like that. But crack is just it's just coke, but just I think more intense. So coke is like it's going to make you really focused, right? Really focused and like really talkative. So it would be somebody. Okay, It would
1: be uh, Maria Kondo. Uh (laughs) Who's that? You don't know about the Con Marie method? No. Who's oh, that? man. She's this Japanese woman with a. Oh, a, yeah, a chef. yeah, yeah. The. Uh, the I would smoke crack with her so that way we can get some stuff done. Fuck yeah. I need to tidy some stuff up. <laughs> That's a perfect answer. All right. And this is a
2: reoccurring question that we'll end on, okay? Okay. Uh, on a scale of blackness,
1: how black is this album?
0: Ooh. On
1: a scale of blackness, um, blackity black. It's It's a very. It's very black. That's I, I, that's what I think. Yeah, people don't think of rock as a genre that black people do for some strange reason. If black people do rock, then it's R and B, you know. Um, but I think this is a very 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 black album, uh, especially because of the, the kind of the themes that are explored and the way that they are explored, especially like thinking about you know the context of who george clinton was and where he came from and how he did what he did to get to the point of making this album so that is very 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 black to me very 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 black especially because again these are the seeds of afrofuturism which is its own kind of idea its own kind of movement but it took someone like george clinton who i would say is a true original you know he is he is inventing an idea outside of not just the music but sort of the context and in, in inventing a universe for this music to live inside of in which these are the stories that get told and i just think that that, that is it's it's beautiful it's brilliant and i think it's, it's soup soup super black super black dude you were a super guest man did you see how oh, i did oh, that oh, you, you were
2: fantastic thank you for being so <laughs> honest so funny and just uh, for taking Time out to come here. Now you can go home and take care of your child. Hey, there you go. <laughs> I love you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. The one and only Baron bond ladies and gentlemen. For all things Baron Vaughn, go to baronvaughn.com. Last name spelled V A U G H N. And if you want to find him on all social media, it's Baron Vaughn Black, spelled B A R V O N B L A Q. Baron Vaughn Black on all social media. Check him out on Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix. Check him out on Grace and Frankie on Netflix. But most importantly, guys, The New Negroes is coming to Comedy Central April 19th. It will also be simulcast on BET as well. Watch it, guys. It is fantastic. It's a mix of stand-up, sketch, and music. Barron and a great MC named Open Mike Eagle created something very incredible, and I want you guys to see it. So watch it April 19th. I'll also be posting his mixtape track listing link. You guys know that they're doing this, right? Every guest that we have on this show is making a mixtape for all of you. Jim Jeffries made a mixtape. Bill Burr made a mixtape. Fortune Feimster made a mixtape. Sal Volcano made a mixtape. Michael Rappaport. Everybody. I tell them, I'm like, make a mixtape like you're making it for a friend that shows the music that you like. And that's the point, man, because I want you guys to get everything that you can possibly get out of this podcast. So check out Baron Vaughn and all the rest of the 500 Guests mixtapes on our website. Go to the500podcast.com. If you want to email me, email the podcast. Do it at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on all social media at Josh Adam Myers and go to my website that I haven't updated in a long time because I'm just updating this website, joshadammyers.com. Also, guys, follow my head writer on this show, DJ Morty Coyle. Check out him and his daughter singing many songs from the 500 on their Instagram at B and Daddy Cartoons. Also, listen to his podcast with my rabbi called Yid Nation. Twitter, it's at DJ Morty Coyle. Don't forget, guys, to sign up for the 500 Club. That's our Patreon. You can find it at the500podcast.com backslash club. We give you the podcast a day early. We've got some merch for you guys. Also, you get the full episode. Barron and I tape for almost three hours. It's all good. It's like all the podcast is good. The problem is we don't want to put out a three-hour podcast because we just that might scare people. So what I'm telling you guys is if you want the full episodes, if this is your shit, Join the 500podcast.com. Also, guys, I'll be at Moon Tower Comedy Festival, guys, in Austin, Texas, and I am doing a live 500 taping now. We just listened to Funkadelic from 1971. Now, here is an artist that is directly influenced by this album. And guess what, guys? We have two submissions from the fans. We got two of them. And guess what? We're going to play both songs because if you send in your music, I don't give a fuck. If we get 30 songs for every fucking submission for every artist, we are going to play it because I want to help you guys out. So here we go. From Portland, Oregon, this is Mosca Ross. And the name of this song is El Moron. And from Paso Robles, it's Jack McHugh with Bay City Blues. That's fucking dope, man. Two people sending in their songs. Guess what? I'm playing them because I'm trying to make careers blow up. If you guys are in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists that we have up on this list and you want your music featured at the end of the 500, send your song to 500 podcast at gmail.com and make sure you put the album in the artist that influenced you in the subject. Next week is Loretta Lynn Week with her 2002 compilation all-time greatest hits. Also, I'm going to tell you this right now, if you really want to make this episode count even better, Dude, watch Coal Miner's Daughter. I've done both. I listened to the greatest hits, and I've watched Coal Miner's Daughter. Cried through both of them. Be a part of the movement, guys. Y'all got some homework to do. Stay motherfucking fleecy.